This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything you should know about Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. If you haven't been there yet, check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. My guest this week was Tamim Ferris. Um, Tamim is an Army veteran, combat veteran, Iraq, Afghanistan, and has become a very strong nonfiction writer. Uh, we featured him at Veterans Repertory Theater. Um, he's been uh, had stuff on Lethal Minds Journal. Uh, you know, he's getting out and about, and his material is really good. I met him for the first time earlier this month, um, remotely, on Instagram, but still. And I knew just from uh, him coming on and doing one of Vet Reps' Right Loud shows, I knew he was, um, you know. I, I, I felt really comfortable talking to him. I was like, oh man, when we do a show, this is going to be a long one. Um, I think there's going to be a lot of ground to cover. And then uh, we both made the tactical mistake of deciding to do a show on a Friday night, which has a very different feel to it <laughs> than when we do them uh, pretty much any other time. It was just a very uh, laid back, great conversation about not very laid back subject matter. <clears throat> so really getting a chance to slow walk our way through some fascinating details. Uh, as you'll hear me say, we could have done an entire show just on Tamim's father. Um, but then, um, you know, this, this is a show that has an awful lot for not just the combat veteran, but also for anyone that's been in a dark place. Um, you know, uh, it's interesting. Uh, you know, Tamim is just kind of emerging from the darkness, and his writing is meeting him there. And it's uh, incredible work. But anyway, I'm not going to, I think if I were to say any more, probably give some spoilers away. So uh, if you're not already tracking him, you should be. And I think this episode is going to be, I, I had a blast recording it with him. It was a great conversation, and I think there's, uh, I think there'll be a Okay, without further ado, I'm Christopher Paul Meyer. I'm the Artistic Director 
at Veterans Repertory Theater. And this is Tamim Ferris's profile in Havoc. All right, Tamim, welcome to the show. Thank you, thank you. Finally. <laughs> yeah, right? It, I well, feel like it's I been a while. Since we spoke last, yeah. Well, when did we do the right loud? I mean, that well, was, the, the right loud wasn't ago. that long ago. I just took forever getting around to inviting you on this show because I was like, why? I don't know why. Because there's like a running list of people that I want to talk to. And then the list gets subverted or I, I don't know. I, I cause sometimes I need to nudge, but I was like, but I mean, like we had featured your writing on the Savage Wonder literary blog. And I was like, Oh, this guy's got to be freaking interesting. And I don't know. We just never got around it. So anyway, from in my mind, it's been a long time since you've been on my list. And, uh, and then, yeah, yeah obviously the right lab was a good nudge. Yeah, man. Well, and, well and I not, appreciate the invite. Well, not to mention the first time you were on Right Loud, I wasn't there, right? Because Dex hosted yeah, it, and right. my and that was supposed to be my nudge, and then I missed that one, and then I was like, "Oh, son of a bitch!" Um, all right, that's we're going to punt on that for a little bit. Anyway, dude, it's great to see you. And I'm glad we can finally do this. Let's, um, I guess, let's just start at the beginning. First off, I love the space. Are you in the basement? I am. Yes, this is my dungeon, my basement lair. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I started working out of here, like in the beginning of the pandemic and, uh, yeah, Is that, it's good. It's good. I know. I like it. It's a very, it, it's a little, um, what's the word I'm looking for? It's like got a good stripped down vibe. Am I seeing a GI Joe on the back wall or what is the, what's the several of them? Yeah. Several of them. Okay. Yeah. That's, which GI yeah. Joe's is that yeah. back there? Who am I looking uh, at? Actually, I don't know. The only reason I got them is because they're all, both of them are Rangers. So. <laughs> got you all right um yeah well on that note let's dive into you dude so let's i think start at the beginning i never start at the beginning and then i always regret that i didn't so let's just do that let's just level set first off um where were you born glendale california okay and um what did your parents do so my dad um He's a bit of an enigma, I guess. He was a uh, immigrant. Yeah, he's actually from Iraq. Um, and uh, I guess in the early 80s, uh, late 70s, he kind of like fled the country because of the war with Iran. And uh, he'd been, you know, drafted, conscripted into the Iraqi army and had kind of subsisted under the radar for like a number of years because he, he's an artist, you know, like a classically trained artist. Um, so he was working for like the army newspaper or something doing page layouts and, you know, like their version of stars and stripes basically. Uh, and, but then apparently, you know, word came down the pipe that his whole section was basically getting sent to the, the front line, like with the, the Iranians and stuff. And so he, he basically popped smoke and fled to Europe, uh, where he, lived and worked in spain for like several years doing like uh you know 
sidewalk portraits of tourists and stuff like that. Uh, and then ended up in the States. So it's a long way of saying, you know, I'm not really sure what my dad did uh, when I was first, you know, coming into the world, except for uh, I do know that he worked for the Saudi royal family for like a number of years. Um, and there's like a whole bunch of like weird intrigue shit with that whole thing. You know, like one of my buddies is convinced that my dad was a spy. And I'm like, no, he absolutely wasn't. He's like the most mild mannered, like artistic, chill dude you would ever meet. Uh, but that said, it's always been hard for me to like pry information out of him about like, you know, who he is, where, you know, what he did in all those years before he met my mom. Um, so anyway, that's my dad. My mom's German. Um, her dad was a American though. He was a GI that was stationed in Europe, um, I guess in the sixties. And, uh, she grew up in Germany and stuff and then, you know, came back to the States and then ended up in Los Angeles. And that's where they met. Um, Okay. At this place called Cafe Casino that like no longer exists in Beverly Hills. Really? Okay. Okay. We got we got a lot to unpack there. I gotta. I, I hey, holy yeah, shit. <laughs> no, no, no. There, there's so much cool shit there. Okay. So first off, um, how often did your dad talk about his previous life or what he had not his previous life, but just his life? How often did he open up? Not very often. Um, not very often at all. You know, he he was. A great dude. I mean, I love my dad to death, but like, to be totally honest with you, like, I don't know anything really about his life prior to uh, him meeting my mom and me being born. Did he ever? So, do you ever remember? I mean, how did you even find out about what happened before he met your mom? Did, did your mom tell you, or how, how did you even find yeah. out? Yeah. Holy yeah, shit. Yeah, my mom told me. And then, uh, you know, just like weird stuff. I remember growing up. Um, like he had this bookshelf uh, that had like all these books on it, like art books and like all kinds of different shit. And I noticed at one point that there were certain books that were turned like the spine in on the, on the bookshelf. Right. So that you couldn't like see the title of the book. And then he had other books that he had made covers for out of plain white paper so that when you pulled it off the shelf, you couldn't see what the, title of it was right and so that got me interested and so i started looking and i'm like every single one of those books were like you know like deep conspiracy type shit like one was uh dark alliance by gary webb and he was this reporter who basically exposed the the cia you know running cocaine and crack like into the country um and the dude got murdered for it you know so it's a good book. Everybody out there should read Dark Alliance. It'll make you think a little bit deeper about some of our government institutions. But at any rate, it was all stuff like that, you know, like dissident type stuff. And so what I ascribe it to is him growing up under, uh, you know, the Saddam regime where you really had to like button down on like subversive literature and stuff like that. And so I think that that was just a holdover from from that period in his life. Um, was he political? In generally in his conversation? Yeah. I mean, when him and I would speak, he definitely had opinions about stuff, uh, yeah. but he would never, never speak to it really uh, in, in like a, a, a public setting, I guess, like among friends right. and stuff. Right. You know? So. Okay. So you said he was classic, a classically trained artist. Where did he train? Yeah. 
So he went to art school in um, Baghdad at first. Like he, he was born in this like tiny village uh, on the Euphrates, uh, like literally mud hut type deal. And then um, went to Baghdad, went to art school uh, after finishing primary school. And then was in, drafted into the army, was there for a couple of years. And then my understanding is that he left to Kuwait first and then was in Kuwait City um, working at a newspaper and I think just continuing his education in, in, in the arts and stuff. And then after he left for Europe, when he went to Spain, he got his master's in uh, fine arts from some university in Madrid that apparently Salvador Dali taught at or went to. I don't know. Um, but that's the story anyway. So did he, I, I, I don't know my, my, I don't know what my mid fifties and sixties Iraqi history, who was in charge when he was born and when he was growing up and then serving. Yeah. So I don't remember who it was, but it was the guy before Saddam took over with the bath party. Like that happened in his lifetime, basically when he was a kid. Okay. Or he might have been like a teenager or something because I, I think Saddam came to power in like the early 70s, maybe late 60s. I'm not sure. Did he ever, did he or your mom ever share his opinions on Saddam? Well, I mean, I had, my dad certainly, um, you know, did not endorse the the regime, you know what I mean? And he had very strong opinions about that kind of stuff. Um, and And I know also, uh, that one of his brothers was a pilot or in the Iraqi Air Force in some capacity and was involved in an assassination plot. Like, I don't know if people remember, uh, but one of Saddam's kids, there was an attempt on his life in the 90s, very early 90s, and uh, it left him kind of like crippled. You know, he survived, but he was like crippled like you know his his leg didn't work or something and uh so the story is that my uncle was somehow involved in that and he just like disappeared into the bowels of one of you know saddam's prisons um so it's actually like a really tragic kind of story on my dad's side of the family like just being stuck in that part of the world through so much like you know what i mean warfare and, and strife and stuff and tons of cousins have been killed and you know aunts and uncles and stuff so the remainder of my family is in northern iraq now and they're they're safe they're in the kurdish part of the country you know that for a fact yeah yeah my dad talks to him now i mean now that there's you know whatsapp and all these different applications and stuff like uh, he stays in pretty steady contact with them and just lets me know every once in a while, kind of like, Oh, Hey, the family asked about you and this is where they are. And you know, everybody's doing good. And, how, how did he stay in touch before WhatsApp? I mean, were they always in touch forever? Like, no, like I, I remember it was, it was like a big deal. Um, you know, he had to get like, this is back in the day. I don't know if people remember like phone cards. You yeah. had to go buy phone cards at like the gas station so that you could yeah. like, you know, call overseas and stuff. And um, he used to have like stacks of these phone cards at the house. Excuse me. And he, he would call back home. And then occasionally, like once or twice, I remember they called us in the States. Uh, and it was always like, you know, one, two o'clock in the morning. 
And uh, it was always like some <laughs> some fucked up news in, in one way or another, which is why they were calling, you know. So. Were they asking for money? Do they need help? Or was it just, mm. hey, by the way, do you guess, do you guess what happened? Yeah, well, my dad was like, I think, you know, I, I never got let in, I guess, to the, the meat and potatoes of the whole financial situation. But I'm, I'm fairly certain that my dad has just been sending money mm. back to the family steadily since he ended up in the States, you know. And what do you know the roots or did your dad or your mom ever hint at what the roots of his disillusionment dissatisfaction with saddam was i mean was it religious based was it politically based was it just human based of like hey i don't approve what he's doing like where why didn't he fall in lockstep with those that did support the bath party yeah that's a really good question i i could only guess that you know his sensibilities were such that you know i he's a peaceful dude, you know? So like, I, I would say that he certainly is, you know, would want to avoid like <laughs> warfare and stuff as much yeah. as possible. So yeah. I think that was a motivation for him to leave. And then also, yeah, I think the political situation there, cause I mean, from a religious perspective, I mean, my dad's Muslim and he's a Sunni Muslim. Saddam was a Sunni Muslim too, you know? And, and that was one of those things about the, um, the Ba'ath Party and the government over there was it was the Sunni uh, the Sunni are like a minority in Iraq and Saddam like you know just kept everything kind of buttoned down super tight um, but yeah no I, you know I don't know so an enigma well no I mean that really is and it's an, an not just an enigma but a really fucking intriguing one I mean that's a lot of threads to pull on there. I mean, we could do a whole show with your dad uh, just based on that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, honestly, like the, 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 the weirdest things that I can remember from being a kid were like when he was working for the Saudis, you know, because, uh, he, we, he's always lived in LA. Like my parents got divorced when I was pretty young. And then I, I moved around a lot, um, with my mom and stepdad and whatever. And, uh, but my dad always stayed in LA and, uh, he he worked for the Saudis up until I was probably, I don't know, like 13, maybe when he just like quit all of a sudden. I remember it was like, I don't work for them anymore, which was like, the fuck, you know, like, because again, like my dad never like told me anything. It was just kind of like, this is what's happening. You know what I mean? Um, and uh, again, I tried to get the story out of him why, and he never told me any reason why he just stopped working for them from one day to the next. And he'd literally been working for them since before I was born. Um, do you know what and, he even did know, for it, them? Did he ever say what he did? No, you have no idea. No, yeah. no, wow. I do know that he was involved with like their estate kind of like in, in the, in the, in Los Angeles. Cause it was like a specific prince that he worked for. And this okay. guy had like a massive house in Bel Air with like a Ferrari and like this old school Mercedes, like Benz limo thing from uh, like the fifties. It was pretty dope. Um, huge house, like huge house. And, and one of his friends, this guy um, that I grew up with too, he was the cook who like worked at the house, the chef, okay. I guess I should say, cause this dude is like more than just a cook, you know? Right. right. But um, it was like, 
you never knew when these people were going to show up. So they had to keep like everything like ready to go and fully stocked at the house, like at all times and the off chance that they would just randomly show up in Los Angeles. Um, so I remember like, you know, entire fridge loads of like food and stuff going bad and getting thrown out and replaced by like new stuff. And that was just the cycle all the time. Right. And my, my dad managed like, um, I'm, I'm pretty sure anyway, he managed like, you know, paying the bills and the taxes and he took the cars like to get serviced and all that kind of stuff. So if I had to guess, I would say he's some sort of like property manager type individual for them. Um, but that said, I mean, there was all kinds of like, you know, just like weird shit that I still kind of scratched my head at, um, about you know, his job and all that. Like, I remember one time they actually came, the Saudis came a couple times and uh, one time they came and there was like this hardcore, like security detail of these like contractor dudes. Like their the head guy was like a former FBI agent. And then all the rest of them were like all ex military. And my dad was like involved in running the protection scheme, like up at this dude's mansion in Bel Air. Um, and I remember like my dad had, like, he had a gun and I'm like, I've never seen him with a gun before. It was like blew my mind. Uh, but then again, no answers, you know? So how, I don't know, man, how long did you live with your dad before he and your mom split? I was three when they got divorced. Uh, and then my mom and I stayed in Los Angeles until I was six. And, uh, at that time, I was like living with my mom Monday through Friday. And then I'd go to stay with my dad on the weekends. Um, and then once we left Los Angeles, me and my mom, um, I used to come back every summer and I'd, I'd like live with my mom for the school year. And then I'd be with my dad for, for summer every year. Got you. So, wow. Um, okay. First off, then when you would come back during the summers and you're in your formative years, were you still coming back to Glendale? Was that still the home in LA? No. So at that point we were in Santa Monica, like uh, Culver okay. city type area okay. on the West side. Okay. So um, the reason I was asking is I was like, I was wondering what it would be like to be um, Iraqi or have an Iraqi father in a heavy Armenian neighborhood. If you were still in Glendale, <laughs> I was like, there might be some cognitive dissonance there. Um, what was it like, though? I mean, L.A. is an interesting city ethnically. What did you or did your did you ever see it through your dad's eyes as to how he fit into the ecosystem of L.A.? Did he like oh, it there? Yeah. Was he comfortable with it, or did he feel like an outsider? What was your perception? I think he fit right in. I mean, he refuses to leave the city, even though all we talk about now on the phone is how it's going to shit. Like worse every day you know but and yeah. i'm like dude come to upstate new york like right. i have an extra bedroom like you can literally stay with me and he's like oh yeah 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 i will i will and then it, it just never happens you know so he's never leaving la that's kind of the conclusion i came to uh a while ago but no he fits right in i mean he he there's a, a big muslim population a big arab population um and uh you know it, it's he's it, i don't know he he seems like a total LA like type dude, you know. I couldn't imagine him anywhere else. Let's put it that way. Does he still paint? Does he still do art? Yeah, yeah, he does. Yeah, and he's like over the years, it's been super interesting to watch him develop his style. 
you know, um, because he used to do more, um, like super realistic stuff, you know what I mean? Portraits and all that kind of thing. And then like over the years, it's gotten more abstract and more abstract. And now it's like, you know, like, um, I know I'm going to butcher the pronunciation, but Basquiat, you know, that, oh, yeah, that sure. dude, yeah. Yeah. that's like the closest analog I could think of to like the style that my dad's art kind of has these days. Um, and it's mixed media and stuff. And, you know, he, he like uses a lot of clippings from Arab language newspapers and stuff. And so I, I love his work. You know, I don't think he would ever, um, you know, actually, I guess I should say, I don't know if he ever pursued like, you know, a gallery, yeah. a showing or, yeah. or anything like that. I mean, I don't think he did, uh, but you know, and I don't know why that is like, if, if he just doesn't want to show his worth to other people, you know, maybe it's just for him. I don't know. Is he, it's interesting because LA, you know, if you say, Hey, he's an LA kind of guy that conjures up a certain image but he also seems like a very private person. Oh yeah, that, absolutely. Okay. So if he's walking down sunset, he's not necessarily trying to attract a lot of attention. He just has a certain wasta about him. Yeah. yeah okay. I mean, he's, he's outgoing, like he'll be friendly to people and stuff, but definitely it's like, uh, he's just in his own world a, a lot of the time. You know what I mean? Yeah. And how was it for you then? So w- were you closer with your mom just because you're spending the majority of the years of the year with her? Uh, yeah, I would say that's accurate. Definitely. Um, I've always been a mama's boy, I think, um, to my own detriment over the <laughs> years, I think maybe a little bit, but, uh, yeah, I, I think I've always been closer with my mom. And part of that is because my dad has been just so like distant in his own way. Um, you know, again, I, I like really don't know anything about him outside of, you know, he's this artist who, you know, goes to gallery showings and, you know, works, used to work for the Saudis. And now he like volunteers at like these, um, you know, Muslim charities and stuff around the city. Cause he's basically retired at this point. Um, which like, part of me hopes that he's just sitting on a pallet of cash from the Saudis that like, he just never told anybody about it. You know what I mean? Because, yeah. So, because it's like, how are you surviving in LA without a job for the last like decade? I, I don't understand it. So where did your mom take you when you left LA? We went to Texas, uh, to college station, mm. uh, cause my aunt lived there. Okay. And was that Her where the sister, was that where the bulk of your childhood then was spent? Nope. Um, after college station, we lived with my aunt for maybe like a year. And then my stepdad uh, came up from LA because my mom had met him in LA. Uh, and he left LA and came to Texas and then they got married. And um, we kind of bounced around a few different places in Texas until we landed uh, just in the Dallas Fort Worth area in this little neighborhood. And they bought a house and, um, you know, it was actually pretty great. Like that was probably the closest thing I had to a, no, I don't even know what you'd call it. Like just nuclear family, like all American type upbringing uh, for like a couple of years there. 
And then I went back to LA and lived with my dad. We kind of reversed it for a few years there where I was living with my dad during the school year and coming out to see my mom over the summer. Um, and that lasted like a couple of years. I was a terrible student. So my dad was just like fed up with me eventually. And was like, I can take him back. Uh, wow. I don't want him kind of thing, you know? Wow. And, uh, so I went back to Texas and found out as soon as my mom picked me up from the airport that we were moving here to upstate New York. And I was in like 98. Uh, and I've basically been here ever since, you know, do you ever wonder what, you, how different your life would have been if you had ended up spending the bulk of your life with your father instead of your mother? Yeah. Yeah. I think about it sometimes. I, I, you know, one thing that he definitely did when I was younger, um, was he like really tried to push, uh, Islam on me, you know, like big time when I was a kid and, and it's whatever, you know, right. Like people's parents, kind of indoctrinate them into their own like religious reality. And so he was just doing, I'm sure what he thought was right, you know? Um, but, uh, you know, I, it just kind of like, I railed against it because, uh, I think by nature, I've always been just this kind of, um, I don't even know, just, <laughs> I want to say a difficult person to be around, but, uh, you know, it, I, I just always kind of like, great against authority that's like been my my uh, biggest issue i would say my whole life um in terms of like you know helping myself out along the course of my life like playing ball with authority figures and stuff i just can't do it right like if there's a difficult way to do something believe me i'll find it you know? <laughs> was your mom <laughs> religious at all she was lutheran but no not really i mean she um she was the one who like between my dad, like, you know, really shoving all of this stuff down my throat. And then my mom being like, I just like, you know, figure it out, whatever you want to believe kind of thing. Um, so, you know, balanced the scales on that. And I, I, in a weird way, like I was very, um, I was never like an outright kind of like atheist. I'd say I was always agnostic um, uh -huh. there. I just had this inkling that there was, you know, something else kind of out there but I didn't know what it was, you know, and I certainly didn't believe with like dogmatic religious uh, extremism really from like all sides. Um, but in my own, in the course of my life, I've kind of come into my own uh, faith, I guess you could say. And uh, so, you know, I'm in a much better place with that. Now I, I, I feel uh, fulfilled in that regard, let's say. Okay. I want to get to that. It's uh, in the dangerously near future. Um, but, I guess let's just examine you where you were as a teen and as a mature okay. person in upstate New York. First off, one of the things I haven't heard yet, which I feel like I hear a decent amount when we talk to someone who's either a refugee, an immigrant, or somebody that's a foreigner to the U.S. and going through a childhood here, is just the the cultural rub, right? Was there any of that for yeah. you? Was there any like square peg in a round hole or feeling like, hey, how do I fit in? Or was that not as much of an issue for you? Yeah, it um it certainly was. Uh just my name alone, you know what I mean? Raised eyebrows in in fucking Texas of all places. 
right. um, you know, and then uh, moving around a lot contributed because it felt like for a while there, every school year I was in a different school with like a different sure. group of classmates. Sure. Um, and then not until later in my life did I really, and when I say later in my life, I mean like, you know, high school. Um, because like middle school, elementary school, like there were issues, but nothing that, you know, you can't, uh, kind of point to just kids being fucking asshole kids, uh, like they all are, you know, um, in high school was when like, I started to have this like feeling of self-awareness about like, Oh, okay. Like, you know, there's like, I come from different stock, I guess, than like these fucking lacrosse players that I'm like going to high school with, you know? And, um, if anything, I never, I never got like fucked with all that bad. There were a couple instances that kind of like stuck out in my mind, but for the most part, I would say what few instances there were just fueled my like countercultural kind of impulse, you know, like where it's just like, all right, well, whatever everybody else is doing, I'm going in like the opposite direction, um, you know, kind of thing. What did you find yourself taking refuge in? Were you a sports guy? Were you, you said you weren't a very good student. I mean, what what was it you gravitated towards then? A good question. I don't know. I think uh, I read a lot. I mean, that was probably the one positive habit that I had uh, in my youth, like as a teenager. Um, Aside from that, like genuinely, I was just going around getting in trouble all the time. Uh, smoking pot, like, yeah, doing just like doing dumb shit. I got in trouble my, uh, my junior year in high school because (laughs) I went out to LA that summer and I got hooked up with like a friend of mine was way into like the Japanese graffiti artists that were like, it was like this thing that was like just breaking on the scene in like Los Angeles. And so we uh, got these like high speed paint markers that people were using Sakura paint markers, which I'm sure you can find them anywhere now, but they were like the fucking hottest shit like back in the day. And uh, so anyway, I got into graffiti and I'm like tagging stuff everywhere. And sure enough, I got busted uh, me and like these two other dudes. And it was like a big fucking deal because like the town that we were in was very like button down suburban. Um, like just i hate it hated it there still hate it to this day but which town um, was it anyway clifton park it's called in in upstate new york just oh, okay. north of albany right. okay yeah and um anyway long story short i got in trouble for doing graffiti and got slapped with like you know my my two buddies that got in trouble with me they came from kind of better off i guess you could say families than mine they were able to afford like good legal representation so they like were taken care of whereas i had a public defender and i got slapped with like an insane amount of community service and i was on probation for several years uh you know and it was just a bad fucking scene all around uh and that's just one instance of me just being a a knucklehead i guess you could say and just getting in trouble so Um, what did each of your parents think about this what your mom think what your dad think how were they reacting to the kid you were becoming Yeah, my dad certainly wasn't happy. Um, But like I said, he's just his 
he's distant. And so I think when things get difficult or uncomfortable, he just kind of like fades into the background. Uh, So he just kind of like, you know, was doing his own thing. My mom, you know, God bless her. She always went to bat for me, regardless of what it was that I'd done um, (laughs) on numerous occasions. And, uh, you know, so I definitely like, I don't know. I aged her, let's say, just with my shenanigans as a as a young man. What was the um, worst thing you got busted for? I would say the graffiti thing in terms of like um the consequences that I had mm-hmm. to deal with was by far the worst. Um but I, you know, I don't know. I've got this weird ability to just somehow wiggle my way out of trouble like 90% of the time or and so I've done way worse stuff than just like graffiti, but somehow I always manage to just escape like by the skin of my teeth. And somehow I, I don't like learn my lesson. You know what I mean? Like every time it's like, damn, dude, you like barely got away with that. Like maybe you should not be a fucking asshole again tomorrow. And no, I just do it again. Like I said, if there's a difficult way to do something, I will find it. Like it's this weird masochistic like urge that I have, I think. What was the worst thing that you did that was worse than the graffiti, but you got away with? Stole a car one time. Like stole it, never returned it, never mitigated it. Like stole it flat out. Right. Yeah. What'd you do with it? Drove it around, drove it around and just left it in, you know, some random parking lot and walked away. Do you remember why? No, because just because, 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 yeah. Now looking back at it, I mean, what do you think was going on for you? Why do you think you were doing all that stuff? I think I was really angry. Just like all the time, angry, um, for a variety of reasons. I think, uh, you know, just like. Being transient my whole life, you know what I mean? Feeling like I'd missed out on some kind of idealistic childhood experience, you know what I mean? Seeing all the kids that I was friends with in high school who, I mean, you know, great people, many of which I'm still like dear friends with today. Um, You know, they had that like fucking picture perfect suburban. American upbringing, riding the bus to school every day, super safe environment, like nothing to worry about. Whereas like, I remember our apartment in North Hollywood when I was probably like five years old, some woman on PCP naked jumping on the hood of a police car, like outside the window of our apartment building. You know what I mean? Sure. And then just moving around all the time. And for sure, like that feeling of being an outsider, um, basically my whole life up, you know, up to that point, up until the army really. Um, so yeah, just anger. I was very angry. Um, and I had no outlet for it, you know, and you know, if, if I would have, I guess, channeled all of that energy into different places, it probably would have been a lot more productive in the long run, but you know, whatever, man. I had fun. Um, did you fight? Did you get in fights? Yeah. 
not not too many, not too many. I was I'm usually pretty good at talking my way out of situations like that when I was younger. Um, most of the fights I was in, I lost, you know. And again, that masochistic kind of thing where it was like I would start fights to lose sometimes. Um, but no, for the most part, I I didn't fight too too much. Um, it, until the army. I mean, that all changed once right. I joined the army. Right. Yeah. Um, what about girls? Were you good with girls? Were you like not slick? Like, how'd you find yourself fitting in socially? I mean, I would say if I, I would say that I probably wasn't very slick, but you know, I did. Okay. I was pretty successful for the most part, but I, it was always awkward for me. I always felt super weird, like dealing with the opposite sex, okay. you know? And where did you see this all going? Did you give it any thought as to, hey, when I get out of high school, I'm going to do X? Did you have any idea where you're going with your life at that point? None. None. I mean, I was probably rocking a like 2.1 GPA like my senior year. I was just skipping classes left and right. Um, I had like no thought really for the future in terms of like college, you know, and that was another thing too, where it's just like, you know, every single person like, Oh, you know, it's that senior year of high school acceptance yeah. letter right. kind of season towards right. the end there. And I was just missing that completely because I hadn't even applied to a single college. Like I didn't think I, I was going to get in. And I mean, plus my, well, I, I probably wasn't going to get in <laughs> to be totally honest, but then also uh, my parents made it pretty clear that it's like, you know, we're not paying all, like we don't have the money. So like figure it out. And in fact, the day that I actually graduated, like walked across the stage and got my diploma, uh, when we got back home, <laughs> my parents said, one, we never thought you'd actually graduate. This is my mom and my stepdad. One, we never thought you'd actually graduate. Two, we're moving to Australia. Yeah. We, we as in them or you as well them they all left and they were like figure it out so they didn't kick you out of the house they kicked themselves out of the house yeah yeah pretty much what so what did that mean for you what 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 did you do so i went back to la um and i kind of like stayed with my dad for a little while and like attempted a couple community college classes but like that you know just didn't work out at all um and uh, ended up moving out into a like studio apartment in Culver City with a buddy of mine. Um, and then I was just kind of working and like making money and just like marking time, basically surviving, kind of, you know, getting high, drinking. I was like that annoying hipster douchebag that was like walking around with like a German army surplus jacket, yeah. smoking unfiltered cigarettes, you yep. know, like reading totally just like bougie books and shit like you know just had some stupid book tucked under my arm all the time so it's embarrassing to think about when i like look back on who i was in that time frame well no but i mean who didn't want to be that at a certain point i mean what i'm wondering though is well, first off what were you doing to make money when you were over there doing that i was working in this like um bodega type like grocery store convenience store joint okay yeah. But usually if you're that kind of person that you're wearing the old surplus army jacket and, you know, whatever, rocking a beret or a unfiltered cigarette or whatever with a book, 
I mean, usually it's because you have, it's because you're the kind of douchebag that has, that aspires to be like, you know, whatever the next Bukowski or the next this or the next that. What did you think you were the next of? What what were you aspiring yeah. to be? Or was it literally just you know like the jacket? <laughs> I mean, I did like the jacket, <laughs> but no, honestly, I, um, I don't know. I mean, it was at that point I had like a lot of just angst like built up and I knew that I, you know, needed some sort of creative outlet. I mean, like I mentioned on the right loud, like one of my first kind of dreams as a kid was to be a writer, right? Like, and, uh, having grown up in LA, I was like plugged into the movies. Like it was just a big part of my life. And so I thought screenwriting, you know, I was like super into screenwriting and, uh, you know, all this stuff, but like one of the things that I've like agonized over, uh, for most of my life is the fact that like the follow through piece was like kind of missing always, you know? And it was like, I had all these ideas and like these like writing prompt type ideas that would like pop into my head. But then I'd like somehow naysay myself out of like even starting the thing because it's like, wow, you know, fucking this or that, like just bullshit excuses basically that I was making to myself. Right. So if there's like anybody who's like 17, 18 watching this, like take it from me, like just whatever the thing is that you kind of want to do, do it. Like who gives a shit if it's awful it will be awful you know what i mean i promise you it will be it only gets better by doing you know what yeah, i mean so yeah yeah no absolutely and it seems like the one touchstone the one positive thing you had taken out of your entire childhood was reading because i mean as much yeah. as you're like we're ragging on like walking around with a surplus army jacket and all that i mean the fact that you ha- actually had a book tucked under your arm i mean I'll take that kind of pretentiousness over most of the stuff you see nowadays where you just be hunched over with, you know, a sciatica issue while you fucking play on a video game or something. Like, I mean, it's, it's actually kind of impressive that you actually had a book tucked under your shoulder or under your arm. Yeah. So I, it seems like that was the biggest takeaway, right? Yeah, big time. And I mean, right around then was when I was starting to read like new types of, um, literature i guess so i was reading like uh fucking guy uh burroughs william s burroughs like i was reading books of his and i was reading um i i always kind of gravitated back towards like war related type stuff um i guess i should mention just as a sidebar like from earlier in my childhood you know like uh veterans day and memorial day were like my two favorite holidays because i got to stay home from school which was like really the key piece. I didn't have to go to school that day. And then also like TMC and AM or TCM and AMC were playing like old black and white war world war two movies, like all day. And those were like my favorite man, like the longest day yeah. in uh, bridge, Battle too far. Of the Balls, like bridge too far yeah. bridge over the river Kwai, like all these movies I absolutely loved as a kid. Um, and so now fast forward back to my like hipster douchebag stage and I was reading these like almost countercultural war books. Like yeah. the first one that I read that really like blew my mind was dispatches by Michael Hare. Um, and that's still probably my favorite book of all time. Um, and it was just written in, in this like 
super trippy way where you could tell that like hair was he was in vietnam and he was like going out and doing this like crazy shit on these like combat missions and he was there like during the Tet offensive but like you could tell he was just like smoking hash the whole time that he was like in nam like going out on patrol with these like grunts and stuff and so the way it's written it was just like you know it kind of blew my mind because it, it was narratively it was disjointed and kind of hard to understand and read at certain points but the aura of the thing it was like damn like this is a different way to tell this like core kind of war story that i think has probably been with humanity since the very beginning of course you know i mean read the iliad you know what i mean so right what year was this that you're in culver city reading and doing the whole hipster that would have been 2000 and three i think or four maybe no four summer of okay. 2004 because i graduated oh four so um so funny i was in la that like yeah that late summer fall that's when i moved to la in 2004 um so mm. who knows maybe maybe we doffed berets to each other at some point walking around we probably did. Yeah, Where did LA. You i i i initially moved to uh to West Hollywood that lasted for about three weeks. Then I moved to, uh, <laughs> I moved to La Brea and, um, I don't know if you know, like it's just down from Franklin. It was La Brea and Yucca. It was that okay. you would know it. I, I guarantee you would know the motel that was on that corner across from us. Cause it was the one where all the, uh, tranny hookers were, um, which to be <laughs> fair, I I've, I've said this before to people. I never, like it's funny now i i gotta sidebar this because everybody you know obviously trans is a big thing now and all that and i guess tranny's like a bad word you're not supposed to say that anymore i, I don't know when that happened but I, can, I came back from a deployment and like that was like not a thing you say anymore or something i don't know anyway yeah, right. but to me i was like motherfucker i was dealing with that like decade 15 years before everybody else like that was nothing like and now like the rest of the country is all caught up in this and thinks they're hip and i'm like no dude that's old hat yeah. but what was hilarious to me, i never saw we can sidebar on this. I never saw a female streetwalker my entire life in LA. All I ever, the only, if there was a prostitute on the street, it was always a, a, a trans hooker. I, 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 I'm sure there were female hookers somewhere. I just don't know why. Maybe it's just because I was always driving through Hollywood, but I was like, you'd see them out everywhere. And I remember when I first moved there, I was like, man, these, these, Hookers are really brazen. I remember I was walking by them to go get a pizza once out of that apartment building. And I was like, oh, crap, there's a mustache. Oh, okay, shit. And, but like I, my whole life, and then that never changed during like the almost decade I was in LA. I never saw, I, mean, I saw female prostitutes when I was working in the nightclubs. They'd come and try to rub up against guests, but I never saw a female streetwalker. Yeah. If you saw one, then you're doing better than me, but I'd, I don't know. Was, I never did. I never did. It's a weird phenomenon. It's, it's something Hollywood you don't talk thing, about. I think. It is. It is. And it's still going on. I, the last time I was in LA was in 2019, and uh, Hollywood is exactly the same as it ever was. So something's okay. never changed, I guess. So crazy. Yeah. Okay. Well, leaving the LA thing for a moment. So you were there a couple of years after 9 11. So 9 11 had happened. Yeah. What, how did How did it affect you? Did it affect you? Oh, man. So I remember, um, uh, the, I mean, the, the day, right? Like I was in, I, I was a freshman and uh, I remember I was walking to like a, 
I don't even remember. I don't know what class it was, but I was walking to class and my one buddy came running up the other side of the hallway. And he's like, Oh shit, dude, like a plane just hit the world trade center. And in my mind, I'm like, ah, it's like some fucking Cessna or some like bullshit right, little right. small airplane, yeah. you know, whatever. Yeah. I go on living my life. And then like slowly the kind of buzz like starts building among the student body that like, it's something's like no shit happening. Uh, and then I'd say it was like probably like one thirty, two o'clock in the afternoon. And my history teacher wheeled the, I mean, classic, right? Like seen out of a fucking movie. Like he wheels the TV into the classroom and turns it on. And it's like, holy shit, dude. Like, you know, every, the, the Pentagon's on fire. The towers are down. Like what yeah. the fuck is happening? And I yeah. remember, I mean, this is just how kind of like sick I am. I remember being excited when nine eleven happened because I was like, Oh shit, dude, like shit's about to pop off now. Like, I don't know what it is, but like things are exciting now. You know what I mean? Like chaos yeah. is kind of yeah. like my natural state of being. And, uh, yeah. And then I came home and my mom was on the friend on the, on the phone with her friend from Germany. And they were just like talking about how this is like world war three and like blah, blah, blah. And anyway, long story short, like nine eleven was exciting to me when it happened which is fucked up to say in retrospect because it, you know, obviously like a lot of people died and, you know, whatever. of course, of course. But, um, and then, and then subsequent to that, like the invasion, when the, you know, that newspaper mm -hmm. where it's like the night vision picture, the first Ranger jumping into Afghanistan, you know, like I had that in my desk drawer for like years afterwards, I was like into it, man. And I was like tracking as best I could troop movements like into Afghanistan and then the same thing with the Iraq invasion I was like practically had a fucking map on my wall where I was like okay these guys are here and these guys are here and you know so I I, I don't know I guess in in retrospect you know it's funny we'll get to this I'm sure but like one of the questions that's just always been lingering in my mind is like why the fuck did I join the army like why you know what I mean right. like there's there was no like martial history in my family. I'm not carrying on some tradition, like none of that right. bullshit. Um, and now I look back on it and I'm like, what the fuck else would I have done? Like this weird ass kid with a map on his wall, plotting a fucking yeah. army unit movements across Iraq. Like, uh, duh, like obviously I would have joined the army. Right. You know? Right. Right. What, what was, um, I guess let me let me slow down the the let me freeze frame some of these moments when 9/11 happens and before everybody realized it was Osama bin Laden did you think Iraq had had a role in that did you like did any thought come in your mind of like hey what would my dad like would this somehow involve not him obviously but like hey he might have some insight into this and maybe Iraq is somehow involved or Saddam and somehow this is was there any thought like that in your mind? No, I mean, I just instantly, I was like, okay, terrorists, you know, okay. I didn't think Iraq was involved. If anything, I was worried for my dad, like right off the bat, because, okay. you know, he, he's, I mean, he's a nat, he's got naturalized. He's a U.S. citizen and has been since like, I don't even know, like the probably soon after I was born um to late 80s i think so like he wasn't in any danger in terms of like oh you're getting supported or something right. but right. you know he he's part of that um that uh cultural circle in la and he's plugged into like um 
you know, all those like big time charity organizations that operate out there. And then obviously the, the Saudi Royal family connection, you know what I mean? And so for sure, I was like, I remember being worried for him that like he was going to start getting watched or something. I don't even know, you know, like I was just like, cause obviously in my mind, I'm like, there's, you know, my dad's not capable of like doing yeah. whatever like bullshit uh you know you would think i guess from whatever like you know i'm i'm putting myself in the shoes of like the the government right right after right. 911 and it's just like okay shotgun blast like right. anybody who fits sure. this description ethnically sure you know what i mean like we're rolling them up we're like looking into them we're tapping their phones like whatever the case may be uh, and so like the thought process for me was like, damn, like my dad's going to be living under a microscope for a while and, and unjustified, you know, in my opinion. So did he, did he say anything to you after nine 11? Did he have a reaction? Was he like, you know, Hey, I got to talk to you because nine 11 just happened. Was there any, I just be interested, not just because he was a Rocky, but also he had seen war up close. And he had seen and were up close, not as a foreign war, but as like in his home. And at that point, yeah. like that was a rare thing. I know I felt that you probably felt that it's like we were coming out of the nineties in America, like, or I didn't think I was going to see war again in my lifetime that would actually affect me. So I mean, was, yeah. was there any, did he have any insight? Did he say anything specific to you in the wake of that? I mean, not that I can remember, um, outside of just like, you know, that it was a fucking tragedy and that like, you know, it's crazy. Like the, I think maybe that was the beginning. Cause, and I guess I should also, this is like a light sidebar is that now my dad chilled out significantly on the Islam stuff. Like he is there. Mm. I would honestly say like my dad's barely a fucking Muslim at this point. Oh, like really? He has his own kind of ideas about, you know, he's, mm. he's built his own, um, Space kind of scaffolding, you know what I mean? Um, and I would say maybe like 9 11 and what happened after, like, was the beginning of like the breakdown for him of like the dogmatic kind of view that he had. Because, uh, you know, once it was like uh, beyond a shadow of a doubt that it was Al Qaeda and Osama bin Laden, um, I mean, they're a Sunni group. Al Qaeda is a Sunni extremist, you know, terrorist organization. Uh, and so I think that like he also being a Sunni, it was like, holy shit, like it was easy to dismiss the stuff that Iran was doing with their proxy groups because, oh, they're Shia, yeah. you know what I mean? And yeah. my dad definitely kind of fit in that box where he um, <laughs> just whatever the weird schism is in Islam, like yeah. being a Sunni, he like just didn't like Shia people, you know what I mean? Like didn't trust them, like always went out of his way to be like, oh, that dude's Shia. You know what I mean? Yeah. When I was a kid and stuff and it's like, okay, like I don't give a shit. Like that <laughs> right. doesn't mean anything to me. Right. Um, but so I would say, I think maybe that was the beginning of that for him. Um, and now he's just like in a totally different place. Anyway, I'm sorry. I, I, I no, 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 I no, no, no. That's, that's an interesting completely. sidebar. No, no, no. That's a very worthwhile sidebar. Um, let's fast forward then to, well, I mean, I guess not fast forward. You, we, you said it was 2004 that you're in LA. Um, yep. so let me just ask about the Iraq invasion from 2003. 
what was your did your dad have any feelings leading up to the Iraq invasion or during the Iraq invasion? And did you was it suddenly was there anything where you were like it didn't seem like at any point anybody was ever like, hey, you're part of Rocky, blah, blah, blah. But now suddenly it's like, did you ever feel put under a spotlight in any way because of that? Yeah, I mean, uh, in 2003, when the invasion happened and like, suddenly like on everybody's like mind again, I remember like one instance in high school where some asshole was just like, oh, like something about Saddam, like does your family like know Saddam Hussein or some bullshit like that. and it was like some stupid remark. I can't even remember the context of it, but I remember feeling really shitty, you know, when, when that happened and, and, uh, and that was said. And so that was like right around the time of the invasion. Now my dad, I mean, he was opposed to the Iraq invasion from the get go, you know what I mean? And, and for years prior to that, um, you know, I, he, he was telling me constantly about how, um, the embargo on um, Iraq after the first Gulf War was just like, you know, affecting all the wrong people and the, the citizens were like suffering completely as a result of this like embargo and Saddam and his people were just like whatever small um, aid and, 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 you know, income and whatever was like trickling into the country was just getting siphoned up to like the ruling class. And all the normal people were just suffering as a result. And I mean, come to find out, like, he was kind of right about a lot of the stuff he told me. I mean, shit, like, after the first Gulf War, like, you know, it was a fucking horror show in Iraq uh, in terms of no basic infrastructure, no clean water, no food, no gas for lights, nothing. Like, I mean, the 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 rate of birth defects... Uh, like exploded in Iraq of uh, children being born with birth defects, like life ending birth defects, you know, uh, it was, it was a very bad time. Um, and then, you know, now the cap, so you have a war followed by, you know, a, a decade plus of crushing sanctions that like are affecting the civilian population more than anybody else bookended by another war that lasts uh, you know, over a decade followed up by ISIS. Right. You know what I mean? So like, holy shit. Yeah, that hasn't like, been a fun ride. Did... No, that's right. No. What, what did he think? What did... the ringer. I'm just kind of curious. What did he think should have happened after the Gulf War? After the Gulf, you know, I think like he, so you know how the Kurds, that was famously, right? That was like the first time that we backed the Kurds and then like left yeah. them hanging. Pulled the rug out. The first of yeah. what, like three or four yep. times at this yep. point. Yep. Um, and so that he felt betrayed by that. You know what I mean? And that really you know, we should have gotten rid of Saddam. We should have toppled the Ba'ath Party uh, and just driven straight to Baghdad in the first Gulf War and like instituted uh, democracy or something along those lines. So he liked- that was honestly how he felt. So basically he liked the plan for the Iraq war invasion. He just wanted it to be about 10, 12 years earlier. And then yeah. that would have been fine. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Before the needless suffering for, for fucking millions of people, you know what I mean? Interesting. Yeah. And then what did he think with the Iraq war invasion in 2003? Did he think, did he think something else should be done? Did he think everybody should just leave the country alone and something 
what happened from that? Like what, what was, what was his solution or did he have? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know if he had one, but he okay. was just pissed that it was happening. Um, and in a way, rightfully so, because I mean, there wasn't a single Iraqi involved in fucking nine 11. You know what I mean? So, I mean, if you want to be real about it, like my personal feeling on the matter is that we should have never invaded Iraq. Like it had no strategic value. It had absolutely no, there, the rationale is missing for me completely. Afghanistan, sure. You know, the Taliban, bin Laden was there. You know, we, we gave them the option of like turning him over and he didn't. So, all right, fine. We're going to topple your whole government in a fucking fortnight. Right. <laughs> you know what I mean? What did you think at the time in 2003? Did you think the Iraq war was justified? No, absolutely not. Uh, but despite that, I was still eagerly following like all the news about it. You know what I mean? Like, um, Why? even back then, I think. Why was that interesting? I, I, I don't know. I think I'm uh, like, I was just some weird, like war junkie. You yeah. Know? Like, yeah. What was the next inflection point for you? If you're in there in 2004, you're in LA, what happened yeah. next? So I, uh, <laughs> okay. So I was on probation, um, for what this time? And, uh, well, it was the same thing that, that, oh, okay, okay. And, um, I had been put on placed on probation here in upstate New York and had a probation officer and had seen her like a couple of times. And then I moved to LA and my paperwork was transferred to LA. So suddenly I'm on probation in Los Angeles County, like meeting with this, like no shit probation officer. Yeah. That's like some fucking massive, like Hispanic dude that like, you know, was just clearly was at the gym, like every day, very intimidating figure, this guy. And even though like the thing that I had gotten in trouble for had absolutely nothing to do with drugs, I was piss tested every week. Right. And I had to go in and take a piss test and I still enjoyed, <laughs> you know, too many different drugs at the time. Uh, so it was always a crapshoot when I was going in, whether I'd piss hot or not. And eventually I did. Um, and I remember this dude, my LA probation officer called the house uh, and started talking to my dad about how, like, yeah, I pissed hot. This is like a big fucking deal. Like it's going to get remanded like to the court. And, you know, depending on kind of which way it goes, like I could end up in County by wow. saying, wow. so I'm freaking out about that. Right. And sure. my dad's talking to this guy on the phone and then my cell phone rings and it's my New York state probation officer. <laughs> she called to tell me that I've just been released from probation for good behavior because I never got in trouble in the year and a half that I'd been on it. And so I was like, holy shit, fucking you two need to talk like right yeah, now. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. Like, pass numbers around. And then 10 minutes later, the guy from uh, LA uh, called back and he goes, well, you know, like we don't have the paperwork yet, but you've been released. And so there's like nothing we can really do to prosecute this. So this is just between wow. like you and your dad now to figure out what to do kind of thing. Um, so that was like, because up to that point, I was stuck in LA County because I couldn't leave due to the probation thing. You know, I had to show up in Santa Monica yeah, every yeah. week to see this yeah. guy. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it was, it was, uh, that was crazy. I mean, that's one of those, 
there's been a few instances in my life where I'm just like, fucking somebody keeps looking out for me for some fucking yeah. reason. And yeah. I don't know why. And that's definitely one of them. Uh, because then I was free. And so immediately I went to Australia um, to go stay with my mom and stepdad and brother and sister. Um, you know, for kind of my idea was just as long as I can. So I got over there and I, um, started just like, I was working kind of on the side and I was just like under the table stuff. And I was making a little bit of money staying with my mom and family. Um, and then trying any way I could to get a visa to stay in Australia, you know? So I was, I was going to colleges and I was like, you know, can I get a student visa? I was like, can I get a work visa? Like, what can I do? And the bottom line was that if you want to apply for any kind of visa to Australia, you have to do it from outside the country. You can't be uh, there yeah. and apply. Right. And so I'd been there about like six months and my visa was set to expire my tourist visa. Um, and so I had no like prospect for the future. I had absolutely no fucking idea like what I was going to do. And so then I started looking at the army website and, uh, and that was basically a wrap. Like I, I flew back here to upstate New York and like two days later, I started talking to a recruiter. When you went to talk to the recruiter, did you know which MOS you wanted to go to, or was that an adventure to figure out where you're going to end up? I did not. Yeah. So I, I went and talked to the recruiter. Actually, my first choice was like military intelligence. I was always interested in that kind of um, field, you know, and um, like I used to read a lot of like uh, Le Carre, John yeah. Le Carre novels. Yeah. Oh man, like one of my favorites, dude, like Spy Who Came In From The Cold Smiley People. Yeah, like, sure. Great, yeah. great, great book. The Circus. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, 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 yeah. absolutely. Um, and so that was like my first kind of choice really was, was MI. And then I found out that the next, cycle for MI didn't ship for like four months to Fort Huachuca. Uh, and so the, the drill, the dr or drill sergeant, the, um, recruiter was basically like, well, I've got like infantry that leaves in like two weeks and I've got like cab scout and that leaves in, in like three weeks. And I was like, okay, infantry it is. And I was like, you know, because uh, also like just being a, a fucking obsessed with like you know, World War II and Normandy and stuff. It was like airborne infantry. Like, oh man, that's like the, those yeah. dudes were fucking like badasses, you know? Sure. And sure. So, so I, I had these like kind of ideas in my head at the time. And, and but to be honest, it was just an expediency thing. I was like, okay, huh. fuck it. Infantry it is. Like, I, I wasn't, a, I was never opposed to the idea of being grunt, but that just sealed the deal for me. What year was this? That was 2005. That would have okay. been fall of 2005. Yeah. So it, we, we haven't hit like the worst parts of Fallujah and like all the stuff that really started to shift public opinion yet, but we're almost there right in public consciousness. Yeah. Uh, I mean, do you remember what public opinion was at the time? Like were there, and I'll, I'll give you this context. Like I remember when I was walking to the recruiter. And I'm literally, you, you could see that there was no other business I was going to, but the recruiter. And I remember two guys like coming up the escalator, not heading anywhere towards that. And they just looked at me and they were like, don't do it, bro. Don't do it. <laughs> and I was like, fuck you. You don't know me. But, uh, but I mean, like you, know, I could sense the palpable, like, uh, like people do not want me to join. Was there that for you or, or did oh, yeah. were you oblivious to it? Yeah. Okay. 
Oh, uh, no, big time. Like, I mean, um, I remember <laughs> it's a specific conversation I had with a buddy. I got back from the recruiter's office and I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm basically joining the army. Like I signed the paper. The first, the first thing was that 90% of people did not believe me. They just thought I was fucking with them that I joined the army. Nobody believed me that I'd actually done it. And then this other guy who did believe me was like, but dude, you listen to rage against the machine. Like you hate the government. Like, what do you mean you joined the army? And, um, and so that was basically the attitude was just like, what are you doing, dude? Like you're joining the evil empire. You know what I mean? Like for sure. In my friend group at that point, it was not anti-war because people had context enough to be against war anti-war because culturally yeah. that was yeah. like the cool fucking thing to do was be anti-war. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I would say that I fit into that category too, but like at the same time, in the back of my mind, there was this weird, like, and I don't even know what it is, like neuroses that was just kind of like, you know, spinning its wheels back there that, that just eventually got me into the army. Was there sort of anti-authoritarianism too? Did you not like people telling you what to do or going against the the grain? Yeah, absolutely. So that was one of those things too, where it was like, I was like, man, I wonder how I'm going to do. I just resolved to like, just keep my mouth shut and my head down. And and ultimately that's what I did. And I was fine. But you know, it's a different story when it's like an authority figure who is like right up in your face and is, you know what I mean? Like it's palpable. Like, you know, if you don't do what this person tells you to do, like you're fucked in a, in a variety of different ways, as opposed to, the overarching kind of misty idea of like authority, the government, like they, like they are doing things, you know what I mean? And it's, I hate them, whoever they are. I hate them to this day. I do, you know? So at any point, did anybody throw the Iraqi heritage back at your face and go, dude, you're going to Iraq. Like what the fuck? Like, was that even a consideration in your friend group or was it a consideration even for you? knowing that you'd probably be heading there. Yeah. Um, for me, I mean, it, it, it was something that I thought about from time to time, but I think I tended to just kind of shove that down into a box where I was like, I'm just not going to deal with that right now. Yeah. Um, for my friends, not so much because the people that I was really tight with, like they never saw me as this like, you know, first generation kind of American um, I was just like a normal fucking dude, yeah. you know, and yeah. that's how I've always felt. Like, I mean, even to this day, like in the, my job that I have now, I interact with a lot of, um, older veterans, right. Vietnam yeah. vintage yeah. and stuff like that. And with my name, you know, inevitably the, the friggin' comments and questions about like, where, Oh, that, like, that's interesting. Where are you from? And I just, I'm like, I was born in Glendale, California, dude. Like, right, 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 right. Yeah. Like, what do you want from me? Listen to how right. I speak. Like I'm a fucking American. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, right, right. Well, I mean, it's definitely, I mean, I, I think anybody, German, American, Italian, American, whatever, it's world war two. And you're going to fight on the beaches in Enzo. It's going to be like, Hey, how you feel about that being all Italian and everything, you know, like I think, yeah. it, and, and it definitely, that is an interesting juxtaposition. I, for you, well, I guess you'd been following the war. You've been marking it on the wall and the map and all that. Um, how did your dad feel 
with you joining the army, knowing where you were probably going to go? Yeah. So, um, <laughs> and I still feel bad about this to this day, but, uh, he had no idea I was joining the army until the day the recruiter came and picked me up to go. Like I'd gone to maps. I'd been sworn in all that stuff. The recruiter picked me up to go to the, uh, hotel, yeah. fly out the next morning for Fort Benning. Uh, and I finally called him like five minutes before the recruiter came to pick me up. And I was just like, Hey, listen, I joined the army. And, um, <laughs> he was fucking pissed, but it was more like a stunned silence kind of thing on the other side of the, the phone. And at that point I should mention, I guess that my and his relationship, um, was not very good at that time. Like we kind of graded against each other pretty hard in that, you know, three or four months time period where I was living in LA, um, well, I guess longer. It was almost a year that I was living in LA, but at any rate, we, we really kind of, um, hit, hit a, a rocky patch in our relationship. So part of me felt bad. Another part of me was just like, fuck it. It's not really any of his business. What I do, um, you know, almost like it's a courtesy that I'm calling to let yeah. you know that I'm joining the army in retrospect, obviously, that's like a super fucked up thing to do. Having a kid now, like I couldn't even imagine if my daughter did some bullshit like that. Um, but yeah, so he didn't know until I was shipping out. And then we didn't speak again for several months until I got like my first phone privileges um, kind of towards the end of the cycle in uh, in Fort Benning. Yeah. And my mom, my mom obviously knew, like she was in the loop from like the the very beginning kind of thing. Did, what did he say when you did finally talk to him when you got phone privileges? Yeah, he was, um, I think just really concerned, you know what I mean? Like making sure I was okay. Like he just kind of brushed whatever feelings he might've had kind of under the rug, you know, to a certain extent. Um, and then we, we kind of went through these bouts of like being in, in relatively close communication. And then these dry spells where we just like, wouldn't talk for like months and months and months. Um, and, uh, yeah, so it, it was, it was difficult for him for sure. And, uh, I guess for me too, but it was one of those things I just kind of pressed down on that feeling, you know, and, uh, I didn't, I didn't like cogitate on it very much you know right how did it feel when you got to fort benning did you feel was was there were you excited were you like holy shit i made the biggest mistake of my life were you like what was your mindset like hitting benning finally i was scared (laughs) okay yeah i was scared um and then i was bored (laughs) <laughs> because uh we we got to the um in you know like we we left the airport and we kind of drove through the night just like rain soaked night in these buses and they drove us like in the gate of Benning and um dropped us off in front of like the reception building or whatever and uh you know I, it's like one of those where you're like damn like is you know, you have this idea in your head from like movies and stuff, but like some fucking drill sergeants about to come like rip your head off. But like the dude that got on the bus was just fucking like super like nonchalant, just like, all right, get the fuck off the bus. Like, mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And then it it was like they put us in in this like reception hall and we're just sitting there filling out paperwork for like hours and hours and hours. And uh, occasionally the drill sergeant would poke his head in the room and yell at somebody for like falling asleep, you know. And um, so the boredom set in. And then I got scared again when we went to 30th AG because they fuck. It was like Lord of the Flies, dude. Like the first two weeks that I was in the army. Like they would lock us in this bay at night and I'm sure, you know, exactly what I'm talking about. Like, you know, and it's like all these kids and in that day, in those days, only men, you know, um, just vying for some sort of social hierarchy that doesn't exist. And so there was just like fights all the time and like people getting fucked up and having their shit stolen and people going AWOL some kid jumped off the second floor of the the breezeway and broke both his legs Wow! to get out. And like, it was, it was a, a trippy experience. And then like slowly, but surely you just kind of like start falling into the like indoctrination piece of it, I guess. And then you're in the same uniform now and you're marching everywhere. And, um, well, it's weird yeah. to be all those guys when you don't have any military training. Because military training at least gives you a common operating picture. And if it's like yeah. you don't have that, now you're just a bunch of dudes off the street who got on the same bus, and now you're locked all together. So it's like all the testosterone and none of the discipline and none of the conformity Absolutely. and none of the relationships are built yet. Yeah, it's de- I forgot that. It's those weak zeros or whatever the fuck they were. Yeah, those are weird times. <laughs> yeah. So oh, yeah. Were you, how did you feel going through? I'm assuming it was OSIT back still, right? So you're going through yep. there for what, 10, 12 weeks, 14, I think 14. Okay. Something like that. Yeah. I have no idea. Um, how did you feel coming out the other end? Did you feel like you'd accomplished something? Did you feel good? Did you feel, were you fired up? Were you a hard charging dude or were you, you kind of like, were you over it? Like, what was your mindset? I think I was definitely like this side of being a freaking hard charger. Mm-hmm. Um, because like, you know, I was, I, I was like, I was delicate, let's say as a child, you know what I'm saying? Like I was scared of heights. I didn't like going on ladders. Like I didn't like fucking being on my own. Like, you know, like I said, total mama's boy, like that whole thing. And so, uh, there was experiences that, you know, everybody goes through in basic, but for me, they were like conquering like fears and stuff and realizing that I could like, you know, just persist physically for much longer than like I thought capable, um, you know, and, uh, coming out the other side of it, I definitely, well, I mean, also, you know, my platoon was like the fucking bad news bears of, of basically like our entire recruit battalion. Like we never won a single award, uh, in all of the platoon competitions throughout the whole cycle, like we were genuinely the worst platoon in the battalion. And, uh, and we were half national guard and half active duty. So there was just this like rift, like right in the middle of the platoon from day one. Uh, and so, you know, we, we, in our own way, we like built a fucking total spirit of core towards the end. And we were like all happy to be like graduating together and stuff. But like, uh, you know, it's just typical that like my experience would have been this like completely dysfunctional, (laughs) 
you know, like barely limping across the finish line, like type experience, you know what I mean? What did you find out? Not to sound too Oprah ish about this, but what did you find out about yourself at the end of basic? Did you discover that you were more of a leader than you thought? Did you discover that you were more of a follower than you thought? Did you think you were, Hey, I'm more of a conformist than I thought, or I'm more radical. What do you think? What'd you find out about yourself? I think that I found out that, yeah, more of a conformist than I thought, right? Because, like, my whole life up to that point had been spent just railing against authority in one form or fashion because it's just kind of that's what I'd always done. And then realizing that, like, okay, like, if the circumstances are uh dire enough Mm. like you can Mm. fit into any fucking box that they need you to fit into you know what i mean and um that was something i learned about myself and then also uh i don't know man like kind of like this that i was capable i guess of of doing stuff that i would have never thought before and like an example uh, an example, which they don't even do this anymore, but bayonet training right. was like, dude, like that broke my brain when we did bayonet training. And that was like the purpose of it. I'm convinced it's like prime brainwashing time, dude. Like yeah. you're sleep deprived. You are exhausted physically. You know, they're smoking you like nonstop during that whole week with the bayonet. And then they pull you out into formation and you're fucking doing these like step, parry, thrust, like stab between the second and third rib and twist, you know? And like, what makes the grass grow? Blood, blood, blood makes the green grass grow. Like, and like that shit is like hypnotic, dude. Like it gets into your head. And that's something that stuck with me for like a very fucking long time. Like this dark, it unlocked something that I think had already been there. Um, you know, that I maybe wasn't consciously aware of and it probably related to like my anger issues that I had like my whole life up to, up to that point. Um, but yeah, like obviously nobody like, you know, like, people talk big about like, I oh, yeah, fucking kill anybody. Right. Like uh, until you're like in that situation and then you realize like, Oh fuck, like totally different ball game. But like genuinely, like at the end of that, cycle i felt like if i had to like i knew i could to a certain extent you know what i mean like i yeah. wouldn't hesitate who can that had been like beaten out of me yeah, yeah yeah yeah. i want to get back to that in a second uh who came to see you at graduation nobody really yeah how'd you feel about that yeah didn't bother me really yep yeah were you, what was your what was your mind state leaving Benning and going to your first duty station? Were you excited? I was just ready to, yeah, yeah, super excited. I was ready to get the fuck out of Fort Benning. Um, and I was going to Fort Lewis and so I knew that it was like super pretty up there. You know what I mean? And Seattle is like a super cool city. So I was like super stoked about going to, um, Pacific Northwest. Uh, and, yeah, I was, I was eager to kind of move on because I mean, when I signed my contract, uh, to join the army, I got a bonus and I got this like, um, additional pay type thing when I deployed, uh, for volunteering to go to a unit that was deploying like a rapid deployment unit. Oh, gotcha. Um, 
And who so was it? Who were you like, assigned to? Uh, it was 25th ID, 1st Battalion. Okay. Or, yeah. Who the fuck was it? Yeah, 25th ID, but then we reflagged and became 2nd Cav. And then that's gotcha. who I ended up deploying with. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, so you knew you were going to war from the time you were leaving basic. Like you knew that was in your very near future. Yep. And yeah. um, did that change anything for you? Did that, looking back now, did that shift your mindset in any way? Did that make you jock up more than you otherwise would have? Like, what did that do knowing that was imminent? Um, you know, in a, I don't know. I mean, it was an abstract thought. You know, like I knew it was coming and I like to a certain extent, like wanted it, I guess, because I'd volunteered for it and stuff. But the idea of it was like fully abstract in my mind. Like I didn't really understand at that point, like what, you know, the gravity of the situation, let's say. Um, but I was I wanted to go. I mean, I don't know. That's I wanted to because I figured too. like, look, you join the army in the middle of a fucking war and went to the infantry. So, like, what's the fucking point if you're yeah. not going to, you know, go overseas? Yeah, no, totally. Um, where'd you go? Where'd you deploy to? Uh, so in 2007, we deployed to Baghdad, uh, to Iraq. Um, and we were in Southern Baghdad in this place called Al Hadar. Um, that was my first deployment and that was, uh, by far the roughest one. Um, and, uh, that's where a lot of that writing from the Blackfoot page kind of comes from. Cause that was our, our outpost or co our cop out there was Blackfoot. Um, and, you know, incidentally, like a lot of the stuff, uh, that I've written about, well, like almost all of it really on the Blackfoot page and in the, the other stuff, like what I've read and, and has been in lethal minds and, you know, whatever. Uh, that's all from like the first 90 days, really, that huh. we were in country. Really? So we like walked right into this kind of like meat grinder ish type situation where the unit that we were ripping with, um, it was second idea, I think. And uh, they had taken so many casualties in that AO before we got there that they just stopped patrolling outside of like a two or three block radius around the cop. And the one road that was like the MSR that connected the cop to the fobs for like supplies and shit. And that was all they patrolled. And so the rest of our sector to the north uh, was completely controlled by Al-Qaeda and it to the point that they called it their castle in Baghdad. Al-Qaeda did. That neighborhood was their castle. That's how, like, comfortable they felt in the in the operating space, you know? And um, they fortified it. I mean, it was tough. It was tough. So you knew it was Al-Qaeda that was there. They identified oh, yeah. themselves as Al-Qaeda. Yep, AQI. Well, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Um, yeah. Did you see... Uh, I'm jumping ahead of myself, but while we're talking about different organizations and entities operating there, did you see any traces of Iranian influence there? Oh, yeah, absolutely. One instance, very specifically, actually, we um, did a raid and we found uh, there was nobody there. Like the HVT and, and the people that we were after had somehow figured out we were coming or something and they had popped smoke. But there was like 
a whole bunch of material. Like we found ID making stuff and AK 47s and RPG rounds and all this shit. And one of the um, things that we found was this crate that was formerly it housed RPG rounds, but it had been repurposed as just like a footlocker kind of. And in this footlocker, there were IDs and passports and all these like identification documents for the same people from various different countries. And, uh, you know, like Jordanian, Egyptian, you know, Sudani, like all these foreign fighters that were kind of like coming into the area. And um, there were IRGC like um, ID cards and shit that we found in there. And we had these like SF dudes that like came out to get all of this stuff from us because it was like, you know, super valuable intel, whatever. And uh, they basically confirmed for us that, like, yeah, that was a, you know, Republican Guard um, kind of fucking nest, you know, or not Republican Guard, whatever the fuck they are, the IRGC, the Revolutionary Guard. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Yeah. How did you feel? um, Let's let's slow down the, uh, the trajectory a little bit. So when you first got into country, were you the most junior man in your squad? In my team, I was, yeah, okay. yeah. I was on the sniper team um, at the company level, and there were three of us, and there was this dude, Coulter, who was an E5. He was our team lead and, like, the spotter. Uh, and then there was Teddy, who was also an E4 but was senior to me, and he was the shooter. They had both gone to um, sniper school, so they were Bravo 4 qualified. And I wasn't because um, prior to the deployment, like my first job in the army was they shoved me into the RTO spot for my, mm-hmm. my platoon. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I did the platoon level RTO thing for probably a year. And then I got bumped up to the company um, RTO. So I was commander's radio guy uh, probably for like six or seven months until we found out we were deploying. And I went to the first sergeant and I was like, please like, don't let me deploy like as this fucking RTO radio dude. Like, I don't want to be stuck in the talk while everybody else is going out on patrols and shit. And, um, so he was like, well, you know, I can't really move you to one of the line platoons because the, the rosters are all set and shit, but like the sniper team is down a guy and they need a radio person. And so you're it. And I was like, well, fuck yeah. So I ended up being the junior dude on the sniper team when we deployed. What did that mean for you operationally when you guys got in country? What what were they what assignments were they giving you that they weren't giving the rest of the unit? Yeah, so we um well, for one, I mean, when we took over the outpost, it was very like bare bones in terms of the fortifications and um, you know, weapon emplacements and all that kind of stuff. So there was like this build up period for the first like mm. 48 hours that we were there where my first sergeant just like worked the company company mercilessly um, to fortify like all these positions and shit. And so in that old scheme, we were tasked with like a big portion of like the overwatch from the roof. Mm -hmm. Uh, So like a big part of those first few days was just like finding good firing positions and like creating loopholes and doing sector sketches and, you know, being up at the fucking ass crack of dawn and being in the same place all day to watch patterns of life mm-hmm. and, you know, just develop a, a sense for kind of what was going on in sector uh, when we arrived. And uh, yeah, so that was mostly what we were doing in the very beginning. And then after that, we would get tasked out 
um, to like platoons. So like we did a lot of raids, like in those first 90 days, first 180 days. Um, and you know, the sniper team was basically tasked out to every HVT raid we were doing and we worked the outer court on. And so we were usually in place looking for squirters and stuff like that. Um, and very rarely did we get like actually into, um, you know, where the action was happening, so to speak in terms of like raids and stuff. But then a, a big, big part of our mission set later on became, um, you know, like just sitting and waiting for the bad guys to fucking shoot at us. And I didn't really understand that at the time. And I in a weird kind of, it's a weird story, but like at one point in Iraq, I had to, like, I don't even remember where I was or where I was coming back, but I was on my own and I was like taking birds. Like I was flying in helicopters from like place to place. Like either I was coming back from leave maybe, or I had been tasked out for some other thing. I, I honestly can't remember but I was waiting for a bird and there was this dude sitting next to me who ended up being a Navy SEAL. Like he was just in civvies and he had like, you know, slick plate carrier and like high speed mm -hmm. rifle and shit. And so, you know, I uh, got to talking with them and I was, you know, we were just talking and I was telling him kind of what was going on in sector and how pissed I was that like, it felt like every time we got put in like in place in an OP or something, we got compromised and then instead of popping smoke and leaving because we were found, they made us stay until the enemy engaged. And then like, it would become this whole fucking thing. And sometimes people were killed and shit. And I was really angry about that. And this uh, Navy SEAL was just like, dude, that's the whole fucking point. Like they're putting you out there so that you make contact with the enemy and like pin them down so that like other forces can maneuver on them. And like somehow it clicked in my mind. Like, I don't know how I didn't understand that huh. prior to that conversation. Yeah. Um, but then it clicked in my mind. And anyway, again, that's a total friggin', um, no, that's a great, that, that's a great Sorry. digression. No, no, no. That's, that's, um, that makes total sense. Cause it is funny, right? I mean, wars kind of, you know, the old blind men describing an elephant, you know, it's like, you know, you, you, you see a little bit in front of you and it's like, how does this fit in the bigger picture and, and what's going on with that? Um, what was your first contact that you actually had? It was, yeah, it was, it was actually like the second day that we were in sector. Um, we had taken over Blackfoot and we were still in the process of ripping out with the old unit. Uh, and so we only had like half of our, you know, force pool there. There was like, I, I think, well, maybe everybody was out there. Third platoon, second platoon. First platoon was on QRF. Second platoon was on installation security. And then third platoon had been tasked out by the fucking battalion. Anyway, <laughs> I'm getting ahead of myself. Okay, so it was day two. Yeah. Okay. And we were out at Blackfoot and we'd been working like tirelessly to fortify the, the outpost. In the midst of all of that, um, battalion had received a anonymous tip, anonymous single source tip from some fucking person that there was a huge VBIED that was being built out in sector and it was going to be used to hit our outpost. Right. And so battalion insisted on us sending a platoon out to go check it out. Sure enough, it ended up being a fucking ambush and third platoon got ambushed out there and they came, you know, trucks were sent out and brought them back to the base. And, uh, 
then like shit hit the fan. These dudes, they basically attacked the cop from three sides. Um, and it was a, a complex attack, um, where they had like vehicles, they were like ferrying fresh people like into the fight and wow. taking wounded away and like running ammo into their like fighters and shit. And this was all like, again, the elephant analogy that you just mm. used, like at the time I had no idea really what was going on, but all of that extraneous stuff was confirmed by like, um, ISR, like after the fact they, they sent us the drone footage and wow. stuff like at the cop. Um, but yeah, so I, when third platoon had exfilled to go on this, you know, IED hunt. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I was tasked with providing overwatch from the roof while they exfilled. Um, so I was up on the roof and I had the Barrett, the 50 cal with me and I, I watched them leave. Uh, and then I was, I wasn't, I didn't have anything to do until they were coming back into the wire. I had to cover right. them, their infill right. back in. So I went downstairs and I was just kind of fucking around. And then, you know, shit popped off out in sector third platoon got ambushed. So everybody's like amped up now. I run back up to the roof and I'm just kind of like waiting for something to happen and nothing does. Uh, and so I sit down in tower one with this dude, Ryan from second platoon, who was a buddy of mine. And we were just kind of shooting the shit, smoking cigs. And um, we hear this like pop out in sector and this kind of noise that goes like over our head. And uh, we both look over and in the corner of this alleyway, there's just this puff of white smoke that's kind of like coming out. And we're both like, what the fuck was that? And we like stand up to look. And as we stand up, Ryan got shot by a sniper. There was a gap like this big in the Pope glass. And Ryan got shot and the round missed his front plate by like a millimeter curved around uh, into his spine and got lodged into a 40 millimeter grenade that he was wearing on his belt. Yeah. That's a true fucking story. Uh, and hey, wait, so no, he yeah. fell over. Okay. And I like couldn't comprehend really. I don't think what was kind of happening at that moment. So in my mind, I thought he like rolled his ankle and like he fe- just sure. fell over or something. Sure. And I'm like, dude, what are you doing? Get up. And then at this point, boom, like they fucking unloaded on us, you know? And so it's on just your like position specifically. Splitting. Yeah. On our, well, no, just on the, the, the roof in general. Okay. Yeah. Um, but yeah, of course that first thing that we heard was an RPG that got fired at the base and it, it went high though. And it detonated behind the cop. And so then that was like the initiator. It was the RPG, the sniper. And then they opened up with like PKMs and, um, you know, all that shit. And, uh, so it was, uh, you know, just shit was popping off and, um, I like left tower one and I went over to tower two because I thought maybe they could get an angle on the alleyway where the dude was that shot the RPG. Um, and as I'm like moving the stu- the platoon sergeant for second platoon, like yells at me to grab Ryan and he's like, he's hit. And I was like, Oh shit. So I just ran over and I grabbed him. I like hooked my arm under his, um, his, his vest, like the shoulder of it. And I dragged him back to these stairs where we had litter set up. And, uh, that was when I like knew he was shot. Cause I kind of looked behind and I could see the blood trail going back to tower one. And I was like, Holy fuck. And then again, you know, like I just shut down kind of, and, 
I knew I had to do like some sort of first aid, but for some reason I started treating him for shock. I don't know why. So it's like, I like opened up his vest. I like unbloused his boots. I like undid his top and, you know, I lifted, I put his boots up on his helmet. You know what I mean? Like elevated his feet kind of thing. And, uh, when I undid his vest, there was like a quarter sized red dot on the front of his torso where he'd been shot. And, um, yeah. And I just remember thinking like, holy shit, like it's, it's not a lot of blood, like fuck. And then of course the back was like a completely different story. Um, and then at that point, my first sergeant came rushing upstairs and me and him rolled Brian onto a, a, a litter and carried him down to the aid station and then went back upstairs. And then from then it was just like, you know, it, the fight lasted I mean, easily like five or six hours into nightfall, we had um, AWT came on station and they started firing hellfires and our mortars were shooting flares and stuff. And uh, slowly but surely, the the bad guys just melted back into the the darkness kind of thing. And um, yeah, that was that was fucking gnarly. That was like literally day two. (laughs) That's fucking wild. Did you, do you remember, do you remember the first time you pulled the trigger with a target in, in, in the sights? Yeah, it was with the Barrett actually with the 50 cal. Um, and there was a guy that was running across, we called it 60th street or no, it was 30th street was the one that went straight out from like our cop was here. And then there was a church. And then on the other side of the church, there was this Avenue that just went straight North. And you could see up it like six, 700 meters, like easily. Uh, And there was a guy that was running across the street on 30th street. And I, um, I fired with the Barrett. I missed him. I'm like fairly certain. Um, But I didn't have ear pro in. I was like, fuck, I forgot to put my earplugs in. And so I was like, holy fuck. So I I had one earplug and I'm like, okay, which ear? So I just put it in an ear and then I just dealt with it, you know? And, um, those M3s were the M3 plugs. Yeah. Was, oh fuck. <laughs> yeah, they, uh, a lot of good out of that anyway, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> Shit. Jesus. Yeah. Did you go through the yeah, whole yeah, firefight yeah. with the one earplug? Yeah, I sure oh, did. Now, I, I, um, I put the Barrett away after a while, especially once it started getting dark. Um, and then I, I had, cause I also, my primary weapon system was the M4 with an M203 grenade launcher. Uh, and so I was using the grenade launcher mostly at night. I was just shooting loom, loom rounds. Okay. Um, so that's kind of what I, what I started doing. And, and, uh, yeah, it was, it was fucking gnarly, dude. Baptism by fire, like for real. Yeah. Um, talk about that. Did, was there ever a moment that you kind of pinched yourself in the middle of that and went, holy shit, this is it. This is what, this is what all the, all the chatters about. This is the fucking thing. Was it, was there ever a moment like that when they kind of realized, Oh, this is exactly what the fuck you see in movies. Like this is this moment. No, not until after I mean, during the fact I was, you know, I wouldn't even say I was like dialed in because I wasn't, I was just hanging on for dear life. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And it wasn't until much later. Like I, I remember after it was over, I, um, I went downstairs and we had this little chow hall set up and there was a dude who I was friendly with this, uh, one of our forward observers, um, who was an E5 and this was his second or, or third, maybe deployment. 
And I was like, uh, holy shit, dude. Like, can you fucking believe that? Like, oh my God, like the fucking helicopter blew up the building. Like going a mile a minute because, and he just looks at me with this like deadpan expression. And he's just like, ain't my first rodeo. And I was like, oh yeah, fucking right, dude. So like everybody goes through this, you know? Yeah. Yeah. How did you have time even a couple days later to kind of unpack it? Or did other shit start popping off and you just never really had a chance to process your first contact? It just got blurred yeah, no, everything else. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That, the, the latter, you know, because, um, like I said, those first 90 days were like a fucking, I don't even know, a fever dream, you know, like, and that's a lot of the stuff that I like pants down on I think in later years and just like willfully kind of forgot um because I mean you know like I said it's 90 days that were bookended by like arriving in Iraq on one end and me going on mid-tour leave on the other end you know because again me being the junior dude on the team I drew the short stick for who had to go on leave first and so we got there in August I went on leave in November and then I got to stay in Iraq when I came back until October of the next year. You know what I mean? Right. Um, so that like 90 day period was just like absolutely super kinetic. And it was like every day we were going out on patrols and it wasn't a matter of like, gee, I wonder if we're going to get yeah, contact right. on this patrol. It was like where and when yeah. on this patrol are we going to take contact? You know, how many, how many casualties did you guys have? on that deployment or even in that 90 day period. Do you remember ballpark? Yeah. So my company, we had one killed and I think we had five or six wounded that were medevaced out, but the battalion had like seven or eight killed okay. and over a dozen wounded, like in, in that time frame. Wow. Yeah. And all Talk- of ours were injured or killed by small arms fire. Like there were, it wasn't IEDs because we did everything dismounted because the IED threat was so high in sector yeah. that it was like the only place you could take vehicles was along the one road that led out to the fob. Got you. Got you. You know, um, where did you go on leave? Did you just go home? Yeah, I came here to upstate New York. Um, just talk about the flight out was that um i I, if it's not the flight out what was the moment at which you kind of like caught your breath and were like so that just happened like i mean that's a fucking as you said it's a fever dream and now suddenly you're completely gobsmacked like whipsawed around you're in the civilian world on leave and you're supposed to be chilling like what was that experience like for you did you start to decompress did you start to unpack was there a sense that you were a different person than you'd been three months before? Like what was going on for you at that moment? Yeah. Yeah. I think for sure there was a sense that like something had changed, but it was like, um, ethereal, I guess. I don't know. I couldn't really grasp it. Right. Like I felt like the same person, but I knew I wasn't the same person. Um, and the unpacking it piece, like, I don't know that I ever did that successfully. Um, because I just rammed it down like so hard, uh, that it's just been something that was festering for like a really long time. 
but coming home on leave, like, you know, I, I remember, <laughs> I remember I landed in Albany, uh, and my buddies picked me up and the first place I was like, I have to go get civilian clothes. Like I can't wear this fucking uniform anymore. Yeah. And so they took me to the mall and I just went and grabbed like literally the first jeans, t-shirt and shoes and shit that I could like get my hands on just to get out of uniform. Yeah. Um, and then we immediately went to the bar and started drinking. Um, and then I'm pretty sure like, like I for sure was smoking weed and stuff too. Uh, and then I remember like we were at my buddy's house and they were like, they insisted that we watch Game of Thrones. And they're like, dude, this show Game of Thrones is so good. You're going to love it. And I'm like, I have absolutely no fucking context. Yeah, right. Like, what the fuck right. is Game of Thrones, dude? Right. Like, what what yeah. do you mean? Like, and so anyway, like that, that ended. And we went to my buddy's apartment and where they had this surprise party for me. And so that's what the Game of Thrones thing was, was like, they had to wait until everybody arrived. And so we walk in and it's just fucking packed this apartment mm -hmm. with like all these people that I know. And I like had this moment where I remember being like, what? <laughs> Holy fuck. And I just walked in and I was like, Hey, what's up? What's up to like two people. And I just kept walking, kept walking until I found a door to a bedroom. And I just went in the bedroom and closed the door behind me and didn't come out again the rest of the night. Um, because I was just overwhelmed by like the, the, the amount of people that were in that, in that space, you know? Um, and then, yeah, the rest of leave was just a series of fucking bad decisions. I just basically stayed fucked up the whole time. I remember, um, my buddy was going to college out at Ithaca and, um, I went out to visit him for like a weekend. Cause he had this like recital, he, he uh, classical guitar was like his, his whole oh, thing, his yeah. major and whatever. And so he had this recital and I went out to see it and his parents were there. And it's the first time I'd seen them probably since like high school. And um, they're like, oh, my God, we heard you join the army and you're in Iraq and like, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I proceed to just launch into the most graphic, like fucked up, like war story that you could ever imagine to these two, like mild mannered parents of my friend. And I, I like didn't even think about it at the time, but like looking back, I'm fucking like mortified. You know what I mean? Like I but don't even remember what I told oh, them. Dude, that's so relatable though. I feel like that's such a net. There is an, I don't even think that's a you thing. That's like a natural reaction because, and I'm, I'm totally spitballing here and I'm bouncing this off you to sanity check this. I feel like that's so natural to go because you haven't had a chance to tell people like what the gear shift is that you've just had to make. So you go right to, this has just been my reality. And I want you to know this because I feel safe enough to just share this with you, but it's such yeah. cognitive dissonance with them. Right. I mean, oh yeah, that fucking makes so much sense to me. I almost feel like that's like an Instagram meme or something like that. Like of just like, you know, combat vet on leave, you know, at a party. Did you, um, how did you feel about yourself or were you too fucked up to kind of take stock? Like, did you feel, how did you feel different? How did you see yourself I differently? Felt, yeah. Um, and that's a good question. I definitely felt, um, just like lethal, you know, and, and very like, uh, 
disconnected from normal ways of interacting with people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, yeah. And just knowing that like, you know, not for nothing, like put a rifle in my hand and, you know, I can do all kinds of like crazy shit that, you know what I mean? Your normal person like wouldn't even expect like that in those days, these days I'm broken and fucking old and I can't right, do right, shit right. anymore. But, <laughs> you know, as a younger man, I definitely just felt that like, um, I don't even, I don't even know how to describe it, but yeah, certainly separate from everything else above it somehow in a weird way like looking down on it it's like the clarity of like being in a fucking super crazy combat situation where it's just like life or death kind of like you know existence pared down to its like lowest common denominator of just like nothing else matters. You either live or you die and it's in your hands, whether either of those outcomes occurs, you know? And, uh, so having experienced that, it's like, you look at everything else as just fucking like super mundane. Yeah. It's like that quote from like fight club, right? Where, where he goes like, once you've been in a fight, the volume on everything else gets turned down hundred percent. How I felt like coming, coming back on leave hundred percent like no, none of the shit it's petty like don't even bother me with this bullshit because like reality is like way fucking crazier than you suburban people like think it is you know what i mean did your buddies know what questions even to ask like did they know that you'd actually been in combat did they have any idea that there were at different mos's and you happen to have one to put you in a certain position doing certain things like was that even a subject of conversation or was it just kind of like you're in uniform? We know you were somewhere in Iraq and that happened. Like, and that's just, Oh, here you go. Soldier. Like, did they even know like specifically what was going on with you? I think to some extent, like, you know, my, my very, like my tight knit group, cause there's, um, you know, a few of these guys, I mean, we're lifelong friends and we, you know, we still have a group chat together uh, and talk every day. But, um, those guys, I think knew that like, holy, you know, something's fucking like different, you know what I'm saying? Um, and I, you know, I wasn't shy about, um, just kind of giving people like the broad strokes of like what was going on in, in sector, you know? And at that time it was like the beginning of the surge. Um, and the narrative was that like things were calming down and that we had all these people in Iraq and it was like starting to, you know what I mean? Like things were improving. Uh, when the, the reality on the ground was like completely different, you know, like we were hanging on by our fingernails um, while all of these different dissident groups were basically lining up for the civil war that would come you know what I mean? Starting in the next year and lasting until, uh, you know, probably ISIS really. Um, and, uh, so yeah, no, it was, I wasn't shy about kind of just like telling the truth about, you know, certain things that had gone on in country. I didn't, you know, go into too many details, I don't think. Um, and then also like even talking about it a little bit with people, 
I had this like sense in my mind that I was like breaking confidence somehow. You know what I mean? It's like, this is something you shouldn't be talking about. Like, you know what I mean? Like all the, like the real tough old school vets, like they never talked about what happened to them. Right. And so there's this part of me that's just like, man, you, you shouldn't be talking about this. But now in retrospect, it's like, I've always, I had to, um, and that impulse has been there probably because the harder I tried to tamp down on those feelings and memories, the more the impulse was that like, you have to get them out somehow, you know? What did it feel like coming back into country? Did it did suddenly kind of feel like an old shoe? I was like, oh yeah, back to this. Okay, cool. And, or, or did, I was relieved. Were you? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I was relieved to get back in country because the whole time I was home, the only thing that I was worried about was what was going on back in sector and like who of my buddies were okay. And like, if anything had gone down, I was like emailing, you know, some of my buddies in country and being like, yo, tell me what's going on. Like, has anybody been hurt? Like what's, what's the situation out in sector, you know? And by the time I got back, like it had been, you know, they, there was some hard fighting that had happened through November while I was on leave. Uh, and then I came back and it was like the very tail end of like Al-Qaeda, AQI's resistance, like in that sector. Because we had just like fucked them up so bad, you know. And uh, they just left. Like the, uh, the surviving Al-Qaeda people, they just packed up and left. And they went to the Syrian border and they were holed up somewhere there until, uh, you know, ISIS came ISIS, along. Yeah. I mean, the dude, the dude that we were fucking looking for the whole time that we were in sector was Omar al Baghdadi. Oh, was it? And we didn't even oh, have, wow. yeah, and wow. we didn't even have a picture of the dude. We didn't know who yeah. he was. Like yeah. in our in our CP, there was this giant poster on one wall that was like a uh, mafia family yeah. tree yeah. kind of deal, and at the very top there was this blank silhouette for Omar al Baghdadi. And we never caught him, you know? And when ISIS came to power, I called my first sergeant and I'm like, dude, is that the same fucking guy? And he was like, yeah, it was the same guy. Wow. And that was its own special kind of like weird feeling, you know, to add to the um, withdrawal from Iraq that just ended in kind of like disaster. And then now, you know, years later, the withdrawal from Afghanistan. And it's just like, what the fuck, man? (laughs) Let's talk about... um... Yeah, what your deployment cycles looked like. Where were your other deployments? I went to Afghanistan in 2010. So I came back from Iraq in um, October of 08. And then that was getting towards the end of my first enlistment. And I was like pretty well set on getting out. Um, You know, I figured I'd like done my deployment. I experienced kind of like what I wanted and I got what I wanted out of it. Um, and it was maybe time to move on. But then at the same time, I was like, well, what the fuck else am I going to do with my life? Because in the interim of me being in the army, I still never resolved that question from before the army Mm -hmm. of like, what actually am I going to do with my life? Um, and so then we found out like probably seven or eight, you know, we, we went back into our training cycle. Like we came back from, everybody went on post-deployment leave and then we came back and we got our replacements and the people ETS that were ETSing and PTS who were PTSing. And there was like a core group of us that had been to Iraq that were still with the unit. 
and we got all the replacements in um, and I got promoted to E5 and had a team. Um, and uh, then we found out that the unit was going to be deploying to Afghanistan. And I was like, oh, shit. OK, well, that's kind of interesting. Mm. And I was like, maybe I see both theaters in the fucking mm. GY, you know? Yeah. And, um, and then subsequent to that, we started like the one good thing that my battalion ever fucking did was that they figured out, um, how to get in sums back like SIG act fucking, mm-hmm. um, the daily SIG act from the unit that we would eventually rip with. And so every day, uh, um, or almost every day. It. Yeah. Yeah. And so we were seeing what was happening in the sector that we would like take over. And the dudes were getting fucked up that we were going to rip with. I mean, you know, it was bad. Like the ID threat was massive over there and they were losing like at one point uh, a striker got blown up and like fucking practically the whole squad inside the striker had been killed by this like deep buried IED. And where was it? um, Which province was it? Oh, so we were, we, Kandahar and then uh, Zabul province, like up in the mountains in the Argandab River Valley. And who was it that you were taking? Who were you ripping with? I think it was second ID. Oh, wow. I think it was actually, you know, that unit with the dude who fucking like went psycho and like went over the wall and murdered like that whole family. Yeah. Wasn't that That Blackhearts? Wasn't that the Blackhearts? 101st or something. Yeah. Yeah. I don't remember, but those were the dudes I'm pretty sure that we ripped with. Um, And so I ended up re-enlisting because, you know, I had these like cherries now that were under me. And I, I remember thinking like, dude, like that sector's bad. And these dudes are going to Afghanistan and they're going to fucking die. If I like, if I'm not there, you know, of course, just in hindsight, like what a fucking stupid like way to think, but literally it's like, if I don't go with them, they're going to die. Like that was my state of being at the time. And so I re-enlisted to go to Afghanistan. Um, and we ended up going and, uh, yeah, that deployment was significantly quieter, uh, than the Iraq deployment, thankfully. Um, Which a lot guys, of walking uh, around. Yeah. Okay. A lot of Presence up and patrols. down mountains, okay. patrolling out to fucking the middle of nowhere. Um, our base was like super isolated. We were on fob lane, uh, which was like I set up in the Argandab River Valley in between these like giant mountain ranges. Uh, and there was one road that led out to our base that had a super high IED threat. So the first time they sent, um, the first time they sent a convoy from the main fob out to our base, they got blown up and a lieutenant got killed. Uh, and so they were like, all right, we're not sending, you know, trucks out there right. anymore. Yeah. So our lifeline was, um, you know, CH-47s that would come drop off water and, and whatever. And then there was a platoon of Navy SEALs that lived on our base. And they would co- they had C-130s that would come in and do supply drops. And so that was basically how we survived. Like, we, we lived with the SEALs and we, like, supported them a little bit in some of their missions. But mostly we were doing, you know, um, security on the FOB and presence patrols in, like, the immediate area. Um, what was bullshit about Afghanistan was that it was pretty apparent within like a month of being on the ground that there was no fucking way we would ever win, uh, that war like ever because the, 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 the Afghans were just like so foreign, their concepts of like, um, 
you know, whatever, I don't know, their values, like just the way they viewed the world was so foreign and different from ours that like they would never be able to bridge the gap to where we could actually get them to cooperate with us. You know what I mean? Like what examples did you see? What, 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 give me an example of what you were talking about. So, yeah, I mean, we, you know, we have these civil affairs people that would come out and, you know, um, they would put like a well into a village and, Hey, we're putting street lights, like these solar powered street lights in this fucking mud hut village. Like, are you kidding me? And then of course the next day they're stripped for all the components and it's just a fucking metal pipe sticking up out of the dirt, you know, and God knows what they did with all the the wire probably ended up in an IED that blew us up like fucking three weeks later. You know what I mean? Um, and like, I remember having this conversation with my company commander where it was like the ink, the ink blot theory where, you know, it was, that was the counterinsurgent, like uh fucking buzzword at the time was like this ink blot theory where it was like, oh, you're going to go out and you do good things for these Afghan villagers. And then they go to like other villages and talk about how great we are and goodwill spreads like an ink blot across the map. And that's how we win. And I'm like, well, no, because the people in this village on this side of the river fucking hate these people in this other village on the other side of the river. It's like a mile distant. They'll kill each other if they see each other in eyesight. You know what I'm saying? Like, how do you reconcile that? Like, you don't. There's just no fucking way that we would ever be able to police that part of the world. Not to mention that there was like a very deliberate attempt from, you know, the brigade level for sure. And probably the core level to avoid any kind of situations where we would get in contact with the Taliban, because at that point, the in sums and the reporting that was going up to Washington hinged on a decline in combat operations and in active combat. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so we fucking had a, we had a like, delineating line there was this village that we never went past that village north on the river and we knew that the taliban were just north of where that village was because we saw them at nighttime they would be driving their motorcycles on top of the ridge line and they had the um the icom chatter like they had taliban radio stations that were going constantly uh and we got rocketed like nonstop at our little base yeah. Uh, and we could never like retaliate in any meaningful way, you know? So one of the things I want to run this by you, cause, um, people that listen to the show regularly know my, my very strong opinions about Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and I, I it's not, you know, I'm interviewing you, so I, I'm not as interested in talking about what I believe, but what I am interested in is the points you're bringing up. I feel like there's always a damned if you do damned, if you don't think. Hey, we went in too strong. Oh my God, we're creating war where there wasn't. Okay, let's do counterinsurgency. Hey, this nice thing isn't going to work. Okay, so my my answer always is, what do you do? What is the what's the right answer? And it's a tough question to ask anybody because again, it's all blind men describing an elephant. Who the fuck knows until you actually start doing it, right? But yeah. off the top of your head, um, if you had, if with the benefit of hindsight, what would you do differently if you had the choice in Afghanistan, in Afghanistan, I would, I would like 
go in hard as fuck, like pick an AO, right. That you want to clean out. Let's say that's like a Taliban center of gravity, right. I would hit it as hard as humanly possible, like literal shock and awe Mm -hmm. and fucking kill as many Taliban as possible, destroy as much of their infrastructure as possible. Um, and you know, just lay the hammer down and then settle in and secure the immediate area. Right. And then, I don't know, I mean, doing good shit for the, the Afghan people, you know, you don't have to put fucking solar powered streetlights in a goddamn village that doesn't even have electricity. You know, yeah. how about just bring them their daily, their basic daily needs, grain, fucking rice, fucking whatever, you know, food like, you know, like, OK, we would give pencils and like school books and shit for kids. And that's great. But like the kids don't go to fucking school. They work in the field. So like what who what good is that doing for anybody? Yeah. Um yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I to be totally honest, I don't think there is a good answer for Afghanistan. And that's why it's like a completely unique landscape. I mean, the only way that you would ever be able to totally control the country is kind of like what the Taliban is doing, just an iron fist and absolutely no room for anybody to deviate from whatever your vision is for like the socio-political fucking structure in that yeah. country. Right. Um, yeah. And even then there's still dissident groups that are, that are fighting amongst themselves, you know? There was, uh, I'm saying this mostly to remind myself because I don't get to talk about, well, I don't get to talk about any of this shit very often except when I do this show <laughs> now because who the fuck do you talk about with the, the, this about in, in day-to-day life? But um, Thomas Barfield's book, um, Afghanistan, it was just called Afghanistan, uh, was a real eye-opener for me. He was an anthropologist that traveled through Afghanistan repeatedly and would live there for months at a time visiting with different people from like the 1970s on and then obviously his visibility reduced drastically after the in the 90s but um but he he talks about the history of afghanistan most of the books the history of afghanistan and then he gets into kind of some of the more modern political takes from the 70s on um but when he talked about uh the iron shake shake rockman that that ruled afghanistan in the late 1800s and was truly the Iron Man of Afghanistan and did unify the country very bloodily, you know, butchered a ton of people, but it was peace. And it was peace that then ushered in almost, almost a century of peace in Afghanistan up until yeah. Afghanistan ended up being caught between communism and Islamofascism. And obviously that didn't work out well on either front. But the interesting thing about Rahman was that he did what Barfield calls the Swiss cheese form of government. And he said, instead of the American cheese form of government, where you go, hey, it's like just one slab of cheese and that covers all your political borders and that's a government. He said, um, Rachman realized early on that the mountains just, the juice wasn't worth the squeeze to control the mountains. So just carve yeah. out little Swiss cheese areas and go, look, the mountain people are the mountain people. As long as they don't fuck with us and they stay up there and do whatever the fuck they do, fine. And so he just let, it was almost like it was a Swiss Canton version of government, I guess you could also say too, where certain Cantons, they just go, okay, we're going to leave you alone, but we're going to have a cordon kind of around that. So if you come down and fuck with us, we'll be there. There'll be tripwires. 
we'll know that shenanigans are afoot and we'll go butcher whoever's coming down the mountain. But other than that, you have autonomy on your little mountain. And that's how he was able. So once he butchered enough people, got all the normal civilians to do whatever he wanted, then those little carve outs kept all these little mountain people isolated indefinitely. And that's how he was able to control the country. Um, I mean, it's an interesting. So to your point about like coming in hard, coming in heavy and all that, it, there certainly is precedent for that. And there's a precedent for a way to control Afghanistan. Rockman also was blessed that he didn't have to compete with the internet and uh, all the different ways <laughs> that he could get around workarounds around carving out yeah. little autonomous zones. I, I also sure. always thought though, much like Iraq, you know, there's a lot of the fate of Afghanistan though was also with its neighbors. And unless you can control the neighbors of Afghanistan, which in Afghanistan's case is every single geopolitical enemy of the United States, it's mm-hmm. going to be really fucking hard to ever pacify Afghanistan. Um, I also think of the flip side, that was also why it was really good for us to be there because we were right in the fucking doorstep of every single geopolitical enemy. And now we're not. And they have complete autonomy yeah. there. And I, I, you know, Afghanistan. And I will say one other thing. And I'll, I'll throw this at you because it's one thing that... Um, I had never thought of, and it became a recurring point that we saw in the withdrawal from Afghanistan uh, when I was working with Pineapple. I didn't mean to wear the Pineapple sweatshirt while I was doing the show, but I did just realize that I'm really pimping that out right now. Um, There was a big difference in the veteran community between people that were in Afghanistan prior to 2013 and after 2013. And I've, I've run across this with a bunch of different folks and floated this, and kind of when we thought we were like, Oh shit, the reason why people have an affinity, why American troops have affinity for the Afghans, is because they were there after 2013. And those that were there before 2013 had a very different experience. And I feel, and I, this is a theory, but I feel like it's got some solid footing, is that there was a generational shift that happened, but it's because we were there for so long that suddenly there was a new generation rising up, both in the military ranks, the ANA and the ANASOC, and ANASOC folks especially, but also even in the civilian population, where when you see like a lot of the young women that took to the street, admittedly in Kabul, where it's Tajiks and it's urban people, but nonetheless, yeah. when they're doing it, they're 20-somethings that had been raised with kind of an American sense of human rights, and that was new, And they, but that's because they had been raised with that. And so a lot of the older, let's call it barbarianism, had kind of degraded a little bit after that first, you know, whatever, 12, 13 years that we've been in country. But they're interesting little bullet points because there's no two ways about it. It's a brutally difficult problem to solve. And, and you know, anyway, I, I throw that out there. React as you see fit. There's no que- I, I was hoping I'd get to a question and I kind of didn't. But, you know, uh, react as you see no. fit. With any, any I mean, I think, you have. I think you're you're spot on. I mean, the generational get divide there, um, because you know, I certainly had no affinity for the fucking Afghans that I was working with. I mean, you know, we we had to go on patrol with them, um, and they were fucking useless. You know what I mean? Like worse yeah. than useless. Like yeah. I mean, these yeah. dudes were smoking hash like five minutes before leaving the wire. You know stopping sleeping like it, i just really like it was infuriating um 
trying to work within the confines of that like partnership with a partner force that like seemed to not give a single solitary fuck about like the mission set or the wider strategic goal um, for, for, you know, the province where we were, the hinterland where we were, cause we were fucking out there, you know? Yeah. And, um, you know, I think that that kind of just also informed my overall assessment that it's just like, we're fucking doomed. Like this is never going to work out. Like it were doomed. So when, when 20, you know, whenever the withdrawal was in 21, I think it was, yeah. um, it was, it hurt to like see that happening just because the, the parallels between that and Saigon were just like so stunning. I mean, the pictures of the Chinooks and the people falling off airplanes. I mean, the same fucking shit happened in, in Saigon and other places of Vietnam. And it was just shocking to like, see us come full circle to, uh, you know, um, I mean, what, like 30 years later, 40 years later, full circle to the circumstance that we'd already kind of been through national tragedy, really, you know? Um, so on one hand it hurt, but on the other hand, I wasn't surprised in the slightest that that's how it all ended, you know? And when they started pulling forces out and they were like, wow, we are like shocked at these lightning advances that the Taliban are making. And I'm like, really? Like you're shocked by this? The Taliban were fucking there already. They just waited until the right time. And they just came out of their houses with an AK 47. Like they were always Taliban. You know what I'm saying? Like they were never not there. Like, you know, we used to contend in, in our sector with these fucking, you know, shadow government, like the Taliban had a shadow government set up in the Argandaba River Valley. Um, and we would go on patrols and there would be night letters, they called them. Yeah. Um, these these fucking like notices that would be, you know, stapled to people's front gates about like, you know, basically saying like, we know you're collaborating with the occupiers and if you don't stop, we're going to fucking kill you. And nine times out of 10, we'd find their bodies later, you know? Um, so anyway, yeah, I don't know. Afghanistan is a fucking shit show. And I, um, I just spent a lot of time there in, in it. It was like an introspective time for me Afghanistan was because when we deployed I was um I became a squad leader so I deployed leading a squad um of these cherry fucks who I hate not they're great um but anyway these these guys we um you know we deployed and it was kind of quiet in our sector we got in a little bit of contact here and there uh and we had to indirect fire like fairly regularly um, but you know, on the whole, like comparatively speaking, like my experience had been Iraq and, and yeah. fucking, you know, just like insanity, almost that whole deployment, um, with a few breaks in between, uh, to go to this, like, you know, now we're in Afghanistan, we're up in the mountains, uh, like totally isolated and removed, like super far from the flagpole. Um, you know, it's quiet. You know what I mean? Like in a literal sense, like it was quiet up in the mountains and I used to like lay out on the bunker at night and uh, with my nods and I would just like watch the sky. And uh, I had a, a, a soldier that had an ambient prescription. And um, for whatever crazy reason, they gave this dude a year's worth of ambient before we deployed to Afghanistan. 
because they were like, we don't know like when you yeah, right. will be able to get into an aid station to like re off yeah. on your script or whatever. And so I used to like take Ambien from this guy and I would take an Ambien and I would force myself to stay awake and I would just get like super fucked up and loopy. And I would just sit up on top of the bunker with my nods and like watch the sky and listen to like David Bowie and like, you know, just all kinds of different music and shit. And, and I just, that's one of my defining memories. Um, just being on top of the bunker. Uh, and then anyway, so, so that was how the deployment kind of started. And I was, that went on for, you know, however many months. And then it, I went on mid tour leave. Um, and then I came back and found out that this E6 that had been in Korea, I think, um, had arrived like while I was on leave and they gave my squad to this dude. So I didn't have a job. And so they, had me going down to Kandahar and like hand carrying these kids that were getting chaptered out of the army. Cause like the logic on this makes no sense. It's like prior to the deployment, they knew that they were chaptering these people. They made them go to Afghanistan for like four months and then chaptered them out in Afghanistan. So my job became to like hand carry these scumbags to the fucking to Kandahar to get them kicked out of the army basically. Um, and so I just kind of hung around on Kandahar for a while. I had no job. It was like very weird, you know, like there was no, um, it was like the only time in my military career where there was like almost zero accountability because like whoever was in charge of me was so far removed that they had no idea what I was doing. So I was just like wandering around Kandahar. Like I grew my beard out. I fucking wore like Ranger panties and my like Brown t-shirt. And I just like was always out of uniform and, um, and then subsequent to that, there was like some reshuffling with one of our other sister companies because there was like, I can't, I don't know if this is the true story, but this is like the rumor that I always heard was that this platoon got dismantled because they made a mess lab, like out at their fucking cop. I, I don't know if it's true. That's what right, I heard. By right. the time I got to that platoon, there were like five surviving dudes from the original platoon and they like would not talk about it. Uh, so they reconstituted this platoon and I basically got put in with there. So this is like a, a new company that I got moved to. Uh, and then I just wrote out the rest of the deployment with those dudes. And um, yeah, we just did a lot of driving around, a lot of walking up and down fucking mountains and not seeing much of anything at that point. So. When you left that was, Afghanistan, that was Afghanistan, yeah, when you left, what had changed for you? Had your mindset changed? Were you kind of getting over the army? It seems like that had been a very reflective, meditative experience. So yeah. what shifted? Yeah. Well, I knew for a fact I was getting out of the army after Afghanistan because I was like, Iraq is basically over. Um, you know, it, it was 20... 11 at that point, like early 2011, I think. And, and we were kind of on the tail end of the deployment. Um, Iraq, I'm pretty sure maybe like had been over, like maybe OIF was like over. It might've been new dawn. I think maybe there was like some, some other thing going on in Iraq, but it was certainly wasn't like combat deployment anymore. Um, even though I'm sure those people like saw combat in some capacity, you know, um, so that was over. And then I was totally disillusioned by Afghanistan and I didn't want to like waste my time. You know what I mean? Going back for another fucking deployment. And I came down on orders actually to go to Fort hood. 
Uh, and I had like, yeah. Right. And I had like 11 months left in the army. So I basically had to reenlist. Like it was either reenlist and take the orders and go to Fort hood where I knew that like, if I got one, once I got to Fort hood, I knew for a fact I was going to deploy again in like three months, mm-hmm. you know? So it was literally come back from Afghanistan, be in Fort hood for like three, four months and then go back to Afghanistan Jeez, yeah. or sign the deck statement, declining the orders and then just get out of the army. And so that's what I ended up doing. Uh, and then we got back to Germany and I had basically 11 months um, to just ride out the end of my contract, you know? And where were um, you? You were in Germany? You guys were stationed in Germany? Yeah. Whatever. Yeah, in Vilsack. Oh, okay. Yeah, sure. And yeah. So and, that's uh, not the worst place to spend your last 11 months in the army. No, it was pretty great, actually. Yeah, Yeah, those last few months were great. Yeah. And did a lot of traveling. Yeah. Um, and what were you thinking now? Because now, now you had the maturity and the experience to know something was going to happen when you got out. Did you think of what the hell you were going to do? No, I still, I, I knew, I was like, okay, I have this GI Bill. I'm going to go to college. Like, that's a given. All right. But like, what are you going to study? And I was like, I don't know, maybe journalism. That was kind of the first thing I was looking at was, was journalism. Um, because in some weird way, like, even though I wasn't going to be in the army anymore, like I didn't think that I was necessarily done with combat. Uh, so I thought, you know, somehow like doing, being correspondent, like I could go places and you know what I mean? See shit. Um, yeah, it, I don't know the, the, the combat piece, like it, it still has a hold on me, you know what I mean? And I get like nostalgic sometimes like thinking about it, which I'm sure is like kind of a common thing that a lot of people deal with but um even though i know better now only now like you know literally 15 years removed from like my first um you know hardcore experience of combat am i at a place where i'm like i'm good you know what i mean like i'm good i wouldn't i don't need to go back like you know even thinking about the state of the world and the fact that like world war three might be looming on the horizon um you know i told i told my girlfriend i'm like listen if the fucking big one pops off like i am gonna join the army again but i'm not gonna go overseas i would only join if they let me do some sort of training fucking job here in the states you know what i mean like because this my is now you're talking is about like, this is now yeah yeah really? i'd probably get back in uniform if if it was a a worthwhile and like if it was really like no shit like world war three like yeah. china fucking sank one of our aircraft carriers or something you know right, what i mean like right. it would have to be something super crazy like i wouldn't go for another one of these bullshit like police action type fucking missions um but even then you know like like i said i'm old and broken now so fucking they probably wouldn't want me anyway and whatever no harm no foul um but yeah so i've kind of moved past it at the time i absolutely didn't um and so i was getting out of the army with some like vague notion about like, you know, maybe being a writer or maybe like being a reporter, like, I don't fucking know. I'm just happy to be out of the army, you know? And so I kind of like rode that high for the first like year that I was out of uniform. Um, And then it just, you know, obviously like no plan, no like serious, like kind of thought, given 
to like the actual mechanics of like living a life outside of an institution like the army. Uh, and so, yeah, I just kind of spiraled into like some really dark places. And, you know, like I mentioned it briefly on the right loud, like there's genuinely like a five year period from 2012 to 2017 that I like kind of don't remember 90% of like what went on in those five years. Like I know I had a bunch of jobs that I just kept bouncing back and forth between. I dropped out of school like twice. Uh, and I did a lot of drugs and fucking, and that was it. Like, I don't remember, you know, I've made a lot of bad decisions in that, in that time too, you know? What kind of drugs did you get into? Well, I mean, I've always like, um, you know, smoked weed and stuff. Um, that's always been a part of my life. Like I, I probably smoked like way too early. I think I was like 13 the first time I got high, but anyway, um, after the army, what I, unfortunately it was fucking opioids, uh, and, and painkiller pills, you know, like, uh, oxycodone, um, had like a really fucking bad kind of grip on me. And, uh, yeah, like I said, just gotten to some like dark, dark places with that shit. Did that come um, from injuries? Did, is that where you discovered it or did you discover it just as a drug? Yeah. So it, actually a friend of mine was like basically taking them recreationally and got me into them. Oh, wow. Uh, sure. And then, you know, they're just, they're amazing. Yeah, right, <laughs> they're so amazing. They'll destroy your fucking life. So yeah, right. uh, naturally I was like into them and that was a wrap on that. And then they got too expensive and, um, there used to be this subreddit called opiate rule call where, and I'm, I'm sure it's closed now, but in, there would be like a, a thread for each state. And then if you lived in that state, you would post like your area code and whether you had like opiates or whatever. So it was like a way to like buy drugs, like online wow. kind of, and meet up with people that were in your area. And so I met this dude, Mike through opiate roll call and he was a heroin addict. Um, and so he was like shooting up heroin. Um, and then about a month after I met him, he died from an overdose. Uh, and I hadn't like gotten a hold of him. I was like trying to get a hold of him, trying to get a hold of him, couldn't get a hold of him. So I drove over to his house and his mom and aunt opened the door with a baseball bat, like ready to chase me off. And I'm like, yo, where's Mike? And they were like, he died. And that was like my first, like, no shit, like super hard like wake up call where I was like, dude, you are literally doing heroin now. And this dude that you were getting heroin with died from a drug overdose. So like maybe it's time to hang up your fucking like dancing shoes on this yeah. one. You know what I mean? And uh yeah, so I mean it was tough, but I I was able to kind of claw my way out from from that. Uh, and then therapy. Did you, did you, well, I started going to therapy like hardcore. Okay. I, I, I started utilize, utilizing the VA, which, you know, any vets that are out there, I don't I can't speak to uh, the VA in other parts of the country. But up, upstate New York, like with Stratton, um, it's great. It's like one of the it's better than private health care at this point, to be totally frank about it. Um, so they're doing right by vets, you know, so give the VA a shot, I guess, if you're listening. Um, but yeah, so I started going to therapy and um, I was in a really bad situation with a, a partner, like a significant other. So I, I kind of got out of that situation 
um, and then just like really hit the reset button kind of on my life. And ironically enough, um, the way I did that was by going back to my fucking pseudo like army roots by fucking going into contracting. Uh, so I like got a job and I was trying to get on the, um, state department, um, the WIPs is what they called it, yeah. like worldwide protective services, the WIPs contract. And while I was on the bench waiting to get on that contract, this other job opportunity through the, the same company came up and it was a deployment and we deployed as like a small team. There were 10 of us. Uh, and it was like a fucking amazing experience. You know, I got to do like no shit commando stuff. Uh, which is like all I really ever wanted to do when I was in the army, Sure, you know, like the high speed, like cool guy fucking like stuff. And so I got a chance to do some of that and uh, be away from home for like 90 days. And, you know, it was um, it was really what I needed. And I came back and, you know, it hasn't you know, it's always rocky roads and stuff, but like, you know, upward trajectory since since 2017. So where'd you deploy to? Can you say? Yeah, so we were like in the Caribbean and like in South America and stuff. Okay. And um did you stay you haven't you're not still on in contract with them, right? Okay. No, no, that that was like kind of a one and done thing. But it got it you got out the of the opportunity. Yeah. Got me out of a really bad situation, yeah. so it and I had a little bit of walking around money afterwards, so I was able to kind of like set myself up a little bit for the future. And I found a good job. And a year later I met my, my current girlfriend, you know, and we've been together like what, almost six years now and, you know, had the baby in August and stuff. So things are good uh, on that front, you know? Um, but uh, yeah, the contracting thing was interesting. It was a good job. And the dudes that I worked with were awesome. Um but it's one of those things where it's like a word of mouth, right? Like once you're on a contract, you kind of have to like know where the next contract is to get on it. You know what I mean? Like none of these jobs are like advertised on the internet really. Uh, and so once you're out of that loop, it's really hard to get caught back up to it kind of thing. Yeah. And um, you know, and I, I wasn't sad necessarily when I, when I realized that I was kind of overdoing that work because I think I was coming to the realization at that point that like, you know, I have to shed this persona, uh, that has just been like weighing on me for fucking like the better part of a decade at that point, um, of just like the combat grunt, you know, wow. and that just had to go, you know, because the drug abuse and all that other shit was like a, a symptom of the greater kind of illness, which was just this rot that I had kind of in my soul yeah. uh, because of the experiences that I'd been through and how twisted like my thought process and mind had become like just in terms of, um, you know, I had no empathy. You know what I mean? Like I used to be a very empathetic person like my whole life. And I think I am now I've like recaptured a big part of that. Uh, but at the time I wasn't like, I didn't give a fuck. You know what I mean? Like verging on like sociopath, like type behavior, like, you know, really didn't care like about 
anyone except the immediate people that I was either a responsible for or be like kind of cared about, you know what I mean? Like my friends that I had deployed with outside of them. Like I didn't fucking care about like anything else, you know? When did, so when did insurgent chimichanga come about? Oh man, I don't even remember. I think that was probably right in that same time frame, like 2017, 2018, maybe. That's um, so you want, I hadn't, it's like you wanted to start being public again. You had, you shucked the persona enough that you could kind of have a different identity now. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. You say that I never thought of it in those terms, but yeah, that's, that's accurate. I think, um, where did the name, because come? like it, I just fucking made it up like in some, I was like, oh, I need a username. Uh, blah, 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 blah. like just fucking literally fun. like, just totally yeah. random. That's it was a good. It's, yeah. a, it's a great name. It's a great name. <laughs> what did you? Just out of curiosity, because that's how I and, and Dex and I, I think both discovered you through this. But what did you think you were going to do with that profile? Was it just going to be you personally, and you're like, "This is what you do now"? Is you have a social media profile, or did you think it was going to be a platform? No, I mean, at first, I because I like avoided social media like pretty heavily. Like I used Facebook. Um, but that was nine times out of 10, just to like stay in touch with like specific people. Right. Right. Um, so I, I like avoided social media. I, I like wasn't into it at all. Um, and then I don't even remember like why I think one of my friends was like, dude, Instagram's like pretty cool. Like pictures and stuff. And I was like, Oh, okay. And so I like looked at it and I'm like, all right. Yeah. Like there's a cool, a few like cool accounts and stuff here. Um, and so I think initially I started it uh literally just for like memes and like random shit and like to connect with other friends of mine that were like on instagram and then slowly but surely um it became this outlet for me to start kind of like talking about stuff i guess you know um but on the side like outside of the you know the social media stuff i had already been starting these kind of like you know, half-hearted kind of attempts at like writing stuff down. Um, but you know, my, it wasn't that my, the, you know, the spirit was willing, but the flesh was weak, right? Like it was, it was difficult. Like I, and I got, I used to get, and I still do get like very frustrated with myself and angry at myself sometimes because it's like, you have this idea, like right on the tip of your fucking tongue, but then like, Uh, like getting it out kind of thing is just like super super difficult and i mean i guess that's the fucking human condition though isn't it right well and that's also why great writing has gotten over that hump that's what great writing is you know the bad writing is the stuff that just doesn't even bother to get over the hump and just puts it down and it's not using you know you're not making the extra effort to get the right words or the right phrasing or the right syntax and you know yeah but talk about that because uh we talked about a little bit right loud you now write every day yeah yeah i try to i mean even even if it's like uh you know like yesterday for instance i um i realized that like i don't know 10 o'clock at night or something that i hadn't like written anything so i was like oh shit so i'd like open up like google docs 
um, and a blank document and then just like had like this idea pop in my head and I just kind of write a brief synopsis, even if it's only like two or three sentences, something to like get my mind turning when I like lay down to sleep because the last thing, almost every night, the last thing I think about before I fall asleep is like whatever it is that I'm writing, whatever I'm working on. It's like the last thought I have before I fall asleep. And then, you know, waking up the next day, uh, it's like not far behind as far as like one of the first thoughts that I have, you know, and uh, I still struggle with like that conceptualizing piece, like just thinking about it and ruminating on it rather than just getting started and and seeing what comes out on, on the page. Yep. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I try and write like every, every day. Absolutely. Have you noticed how, let me rephrase this. How has your writing progressed since you started writing regularly? What improvements have you seen that you've made? I, I, you know, I think honestly, just the, the form, the, the structure, um, you know, I don't know. I think like my ability to like describe things, you know what I mean? And be succinct. Uh, instead of, you know, going on and on and on and on in my like description of like some event or whatever, it's like knowing the word, like, you know, structure of like ending sentences, like, you know, instead of having this fucking long ass sentence, it's like, comma, 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 like, okay, just throw some periods in there, break these thoughts up. You know what I mean? Like from a structural perspective, I think I've gotten better at um at that whole thing and like paragraph generation and like just like okay it's little contained pieces of the of whatever the idea is that i'm trying to get across and then after i'm done with that like reading back over it and then seeing how they all connect and like shuffling things around and so just like the composition i guess um the aspect of it has gotten like a little bit better um I'm not just like word vomiting onto a fucking word processor anymore, you know? But even that, I mean, that's a pretty noble thing to be able to word vomit. Cause as you said, like that's got to break that ice. And sometimes doing it without editing is a big piece. Do you edit now? Do you, do you find oh, yourself yeah. going back over and over? Have you gotten better as an editor for yourself? I think so. Yeah, I think so. And, um, I, I, yeah, you know what I, I do, I do believe I have. Um, and editing has actually become something that I don't dread doing anymore. Mm. Um, because the juice is worth the squeeze, you know, like if it's something that like I've written down and it's like an interesting idea, um, you know, when there's like promise there, then going back through and, and like editing stuff to like, really like, I don't know the the satisfaction that you get out of like changing like one little thing and how boom like this whole piece just like fits together so much better and flows like a professional piece of writing like not some amateur bullshit you know what I mean that satisfaction is like you know if you could bottle that and sell it you'd be a fucking millionaire you know what I mean yeah when did the idea for Blackfoot Chronicles come around at what point did you think you needed to do it in all, your own vertical for that? Yeah. So that actually happened almost by accident because um, I found an old laptop of mine that had been broken. 
and I mean, it still is, but, um, I took the hard drive out of it and I plugged it in and found like a thousand pictures from Iraq and Afghanistan that I had forgotten completely that they even existed. Uh, and so that was like a mind blowing experience. This was probably, I mean, God, I, I've lost all track of like the sense of the passage of time. Um, but probably like two years ago, I would say maybe mm. is when I first like started that page or like a year and a half ago or something at this point. And, uh, yeah, I found this hard drive with all these pictures and it was just a flood of, um, memories and stuff kind of started coming back. And, uh, it just, you know, motivated me to start like writing down specific thoughts uh, and then those like little snippets of like thoughts and memories and stuff started to kind of like, I'd go back and I read and, you know, and, it, and, you know, like I mentioned before on the right loud, like if I'm starting to get to the point where I don't just absolutely fucking despise whatever it is that I've written down. I can actually go back and read it and not like cringe, like off of my chair, you know what I mean? For like, you know, and so that's where that started. Like I'd go back and read some of these, like, you know, and they were like random thoughts and stuff that I had, but they were almost like writing prompts. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Because it's like, here's a sentence that I wrote about like, Oh, remember when blah, blah, blah happened. And it's like, Oh shit. Okay. And so now I'm like digging for like the full memory of like that event. And, um, it just kind of like developed from there, you know? And so really with that page, I was hoping to kind of synergize like writing with these like pictures that some of them are like really great pictures. I mean, there's a lot yeah, of like duds yeah. in there for sure, because it's like, you know, your random digital camera shot as you're like running across an alleyway or something. Right. But like, there's some really great pictures on that hard drive. And I was like, man, like, you know, people need to see these because the, the surge in Iraq is like a hundred percent, like a forgotten period of the war. To your point that you made earlier about like, Oh, five, Oh, six timeframe is when opinion was really starting to turn. Mm -hmm. So I think from a cultural perspective, from a national perspective, people are not remembering because they don't want to remember that period of the war. It was at, you know, like, what do you think? What do people think about when they think of Iraq? They think of the invasion, they think of Ramadi and they think of Fallujah. And that's it. Right. And then next thing you know, it's ISIS and the yeah. Battle of Mosul and and on and on from there. So, I mean, there's like a seven year span of time in there where people were still deploying. People were still going to Iraq. People were still being blown up. They were still being shot. Fighting was happening every single day. Um, you know, it, we were literally on the dividing line between a civil war, uh, you know, and people need to know because. Who the fuck knows the next time we end up in a situation like that, you know, as we've seen with the Afghan pullout, like history has a tendency to repeat itself, you know? Well, absolutely. Um, cause people never stop being people. Um, you've written now at this point, several seminal pieces that uh, by your own account, pieces that really told a story that you wanted told. That you, there was a big lift for you, your recent piece at Lethal Minds Journal, you know, really kind of diving into some of the very granular details of significant emotional events in your life. Do you feel like, as you've written those kind of pieces, 
that those are kind of done for you? Do you have more yeah. to say about those or are those, is that a weight that's lifted? Oh, big time. Like that, that last one specifically for October was like the, the, the capstone kind of piece. I mean, I, you know, I could go on for fucking days if I really wanted to about like all these different events that transpired between Afghanistan and Iraq. But, you know, that was my, those were very, everything I've written up to this point has been extremely like personal in the sense that like, you know, outside of, you know, me referencing like, you know, somebody that was somewhere doing something. It's my story, right? I'm the only character in the story and this is all the action that's happening to me or that I'm taking part in, you know, I'm, I'm leaving out like a huge part of the overall story, which is the fucking the boys and like the camaraderie and like all the crazy fucking shenanigans we used to get up to outside of combat. I mean, like I could write a book about the fucking crazy shit that we used to do to one another we used to waterboard each other for fun. And that is no bullshit. Like we literally waterboarded one another, uh, you know, and we would like just do dumb stuff. Like, yeah, I can't even get into it really. But at any rate, we used to do really stupid shit, but we were having fun. It was the only way we knew to have fun. And that's what's missing from all the stuff that I've written up to this point is any of the fun, any of the other aspects outside of the like super heavy, Mm-hmm. fucking hyper um detailed yeah depictions of like these fucking combat scenarios you know what i mean and i like that stuff's still important for people to read i think because part of me you know like i was that kid that was fucking watching all the world war ii movies when i was a kid and i was tracking the fucking movements of you know troops going across the iraqi desert and i was like just obsessed with this like martial kind of culture. And there are kids out there today, I'm sure that are like the same as I was. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they probably will grow up and they'll probably do a a hitch in, in the Marines or in the army or whatever the case may be. And good for them. You know, I don't ever want to discourage anybody from joining the military because Um, despite all the like bad shit that ultimately came from it, it was still like the best experience of my life. Hands down being in uniform was like the best thing, maybe one of the best things, certainly that I've ever done in my life. You know what I mean? I made the best friends. I did consequential shit. Like, you know, I mean, it was, it was great. I wouldn't take it back for anything. You know what I mean? Even after all the, the, the fucking bad stuff. Um, but that all said, you know, people like have to really fucking think long and hard about the reality of combat before you just willy nilly send fucking people overseas to go do some bullshit. And the, you know, the, the infantry guys and the grunts and shit on the ground, like I know they can't wait to go. They're praying for the fucking tripwire to get tripped. You know what I'm saying? Every day they're praying. And I know because I was that fucking guy, you know what I mean? Like, and, uh, and, you know, kudos to them by all means, you know, go get, go get some, I guess. But like from political standpoint and from a cultural standpoint, the divide between the military and the civilian 
world here in the U.S. is so fucking vast at this point. Of course. Uh, that sometimes you need to use a fucking mallet to like hit people over the head with the truth and just be like, okay, cool. But this is what's waiting for you. You know what I'm saying? Like think long and hard before you, you know, profess your, your, your desire to like go be in the shit because like, this is what happens. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, you get to go on the field and play ball, but like, you know, it's it it it's a lasting kind of experience. It's interesting because uh, I, I see maybe not personally. I should I, I should caveat this, but I think you look at the news and you see youth hungry for war, not actual war, mind you, because we just did twenty of that. And most of them never went. Yeah. But there is something about youth that wants a noble fight. I've said that before on the show, but but it is a recurring theme that keeps coming back. And that's fine. What annoys me is when we go, hey, motherfucker, we just had 20 years of noble fights if you want to get in something. But now you're willing to pick a fight with anybody else as long as it's not actual war. And that shit pisses yeah. me off. And I'm like, it, we, we, we just had 20 years of that. If you want to get the fucking blood out, there's plenty of opportunities for you. Don't start bringing war onto our own shores and in our own fucking cities and act like, you know, that, that shit irritates the crap out of me. I'm like, we, we've been doing this for a minute. So, you know, where the fuck were you if you really wanted to get some then? But anyway, yes, I agree. Where's the writing going for you? What's next for you? I mean, it, and I say that just caveating it or, or giving some context. You've been doing all this autobiographically influenced writing but it's been military themed you have a lot of other experiences in your autobiography that are not military themed that i'm sure would make great writing we've talked and you mentioned it right loud like is fiction in your future is what other stuff is there as you blow this carbon out of the barrel and get these initial wave of stories down what's coming down the pipe for you yeah, so I think that at some point I'm going to have to confront those five years that I kind of lost after the Army. Uh, and, and you know, that's going to be something that I'm going to have to write about. Like, I, I don't have an option there. Um, it's still, like, way too difficult for me to kind of really dig into that stuff in any kind of meaningful way. So, you know, stay tuned, I guess, for that. Uh, but eventually, like, you know, it's like you said, it, it's a key part of the and if anything, I mean, maybe that's the part that more people can relate to than the um, actual like heavy combat stuff, because like at the end of the day, uh, you know, everybody had their experience overseas. But like, you know, it's a relatively small slice of the overall force pool that fucking, you know, dealt with like doing raids and, and, and getting in firefights like every day and that type of shit. Anyway, not to detract from anybody's experience by any means, but um you know, the drug addiction and the, the fucking listlessness and the fucking yeah. just like, you know, what the fuck does all of this mean? Like, what's even the point? I think people can identify with that probably a lot more than the stuff that I've written up to this point. So, you know, that kind of theme, I think, permeates like most of um, the stuff that I write anyway. Um, but yeah, no, fiction is what I'm really interested in. Um, and, you know, surprisingly enough, like poetry Cause I fucking hate poetry. I have to be totally honest. Um, I never understood poetry. I never got it. 
you know, I, they tried to make me read it when I was younger and I just refused to, um, that said, I'm starting to realize, you know, there's some super talented veteran poets out there that are part of like your community and, and this whole thing that I'm like, damn, dude, like, okay, maybe I'm like starting to kind of get it, you know, as a medium, um, for, for getting, you know, like the way I think about it now is like the way I've written up to this point is, um, that's like writing about the event. Poetry is like writing about the feeling. It's like what you were feeling during the event, you know? And so that's, that switch finally like clicked for me in the not too distant past. Um, and so I'm getting into poetry now. So, you know, experimenting a little bit with that, but yeah, fiction is kind of like really where I want to go. Uh, because dude, I mean, I fucking love writing and reading, uh, you know, just like fun stories, you know what I'm saying? Like pulpy fucking just like, you know, Maltese Falcon type stuff, like just a nice, simple fucking whodunit story, some sort of like little action packed thing, a mystery. Like I love that stuff, you know? So so really, and I love sci-fi. I, I think I would write, I, I have some ideas actually, one in particular for a, um, you know, a sci-fi story that I like really have been just kind of chipping away at a little bit, um, little bits and pieces here yeah, and there yeah. as they kind of like make themselves evident to me. And then, so that's one. And then I've got like an action type story thing that I've been working on uh, that's kind of like more in that espionage vein. Mm. Um and then I, I, what the one thing, the one that's going to be my like magnum opus is, uh, is like this. I'm obsessed with the idea of like fables, like absolutely obsessed with the idea of fables and with, you know, like ancient, I guess, literature. Cause like when I think about it, I think about like, you know, the Anabasis and fucking like the Iliad and like all these yeah. like Greek you know, stuff that I've read that my dad, I mean, incidentally enough, my dad made me read shit like that when uh, I was like 13, like forced me to read yeah. uh, the Iliad, you know? Um, so like that type of a story where it's like, you know, the um, Joseph Campbell thing, like the yeah. hero's journey and like just very bare bones. Like you're talking about like uh, something that exists in every single person one way or the other. Uh, so they can connect with it on like some level, you know, and it tells a, it has a message at the end, like just yeah. some, you know, doesn't have to be some earth shattering thing, but like, just like reaffirming human value. You know what I mean? Um, so that's the type of stuff that that's I'm really incredible. interested in. Well, there's also something really freeing about being untethered to an autobiographical reality where it's like, Hey, I yeah. don't have to be faithful to us, to the way it actually happened. I can now just riff. And go, oh, what if? And and now it's over here. And now this thing's happening. You know, there could be like, it can also completely fuck up all your structure because you're like, oh, what if fucking balloon drops over here and a whale appears over here? And next thing you know, <laughs> the story doesn't make any fucking sense. But but there is a a beauty and a, I think a rush from that freedom too. Um, dude, we've done three hours. This Holy has been shit, really. I, I fucked up your Friday night completely. Oh but dude, this has been a fucking blast. Tell everybody how they need to follow you and where they need to go to stay on top of all the stuff you're churning out. Yeah. I mean, the, I've got the two pages on Instagram. That's basically it. It's, um, at, uh, 
Blackfoot Chronicles. I think Blackfoot.Chronicles. I don't fucking know. And then at Insurgent.ChimmyChanga, um, which is more of like my personal kind of page at this point because uh, I started posting pictures of my daughter and shit. And I'm like, okay, time to like put this private, you know? <laughs> so, but at any rate, hey, if you want to follow, by all means, I'll, uh, I'll let you into the club. Um, but Blackfoot Chronicles is like, kind of taken a little bit of a hiatus because of the um just everything with the kid and um you know just getting pulled in a million different directions but i want to get back to it and actually i kind of have been having this thought recently um that i want to change like the mission statement of that page where it's not going to be like only stories from my company and that i personally experienced anymore you know, I want it to be forgotten stories from the surge. Uh, so if you have pictures and you have stories, anybody out there that was in Iraq, you know, 06 to like 08, 09, and you have something that you want put out there that you want to write about um, or whatever, send it my way and, uh, you know, we'll start posting stuff together. We'll work together. Um, but yeah, initially... This is another kind of sidebar. My idea for the Blackfoot Chronicles page was that once I had enough content on it, I wanted to turn it into a coffee table book where it would be like the pictures with the writing kind of as the caption on the side of the picture. You know what I mean? So that's still kind of a go eventually, but um, that's a cool idea. That's a cool idea and a necessary one. Shit, brother. This was great. This was fucking epic. Um, Let's do this again. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely, man. It was a pleasure talking with you. Thank you so much for the invite, man, and for all the support and just rooting for me from the sidelines. You know, I, I really, really, really appreciate it. That was Tamim Ferris's profile in Havoc. Um, as you guys know, I always have a, a short, short, yeah, short uh, kind of editorial discussion with myself um, when inevitably the worthiness of the Iraq or Afghan war comes up as it does in almost every interview we do. And um, I am very evangelical on those points and you guys should at this point know how I feel. Um, But if you don't, I can refer you to just about every other episode, not to mention the ones I've specifically dedicated to the Iraq and Afghan war. And, uh, and that said, you know, I don't, uh, like to, you know, make it all about, you know, reconquering old ground, uh, in our arguments. Um, but I mean, Tamim's, uh, backstory, his father's backstory, I mean, such an interesting context and, um, you know, I, I didn't want to detract from that by getting into discussions about the war. But um, nonetheless, I enjoyed the shit out of talking to, to Meme. And if you haven't read his writing, really do. Um, it's, uh, it's it's really moving, compelling, and well-executed storytelling. Um, as you can tell, coming from a therapeutic basis, but man, it packs a punch um, for anybody. As much as Tamim is writing for himself... I think a lot of uh, a lot of folks would stand to benefit from reading his work. Okay, um, 
We start off this episode by thanking this episode's first sponsor, Second Mission Foundation. I should now take a moment and thank this episode's second sponsor, Veterans Repertory Theater, my own nonprofit, Veterans Repertory Theater. Is uh you know, has existed for literally ten minutes. Not literally, of course. But we we haven't been around that long, but we have punched way above our weight in the short time that we have existed. Um, for those of you that don't know about Veterans Repertory Theater, what we always like to say is that Veterans Repertory Theater is a tax exempt nonprofit 501c3 organization which selects, develops, and produces veteran playwrights and artists through live theater and immersive art performances. More than telling only war stories or focusing on art therapy alone, VetRep delivers to audiences intimate, impactful performances as whimsical, hilarious, absurdist, and jarring as the veteran community that created them. For everything you want to know about VetRep, go to VETREP.org, VetRep.org, VetRep.org. And while you're there, what I would suggest you do is scroll partway down the homepage where you'll be able to click on the link to our literary blog, which also doubles as our mailing list. When you click on it, you will have the option to subscribe for free. And if you do that, you will receive in your email inbox every single day a little snippet of veteran writing, usually poetry, fiction, or creative nonfiction, and then followed with a bunch of shameless plugs with any and everything we have going on at that moment, which right now is not a lot uh, public-facing because we just ended our 2023 season, but 2024 is going to be a fucking monster. We have a lot of stuff coming, so check it out. Um, Get on the literary blog mailing list, and you'll not only get great writing, but you'll also know everything we're doing first. You'll be glad you did, because we've got a lot of cool stuff coming. Okay, so again, vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. I need to thank our producer, Mike Neal, for putting all this together, as always. My thanks again to Tamim Ferris, and on behalf of everyone, at Havoc Journal. See you next time for another profile in Havoc.